So now... All right, hold on just a second, man. We need to take a break. Okay. My wife just came up here and told me the damn tree fell over. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> Give me a minute. Hold on. Yep, yep. Me Duff thinks the tree be okay. What's awesome is my wife came up here to get me. And instead of telling the kids, run up and get your dad, she made the kids hold the tree up. <laughs> You are now listening to the RF Generation Playcast. The Playcast is the place where the single banana and I, Gregos81, discuss the monthly community playthrough games selected by us and shared by a community of gamers on rfgeneration.com and social media platforms like Twitter. This month, we're looking at an intense action adventure from our old friends Ninja Theory. Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice takes players on a dark journey into the hell that is the human mind. Though its subject matter is provocative, its gameplay, of course, must also be considered. Is this a descent worth taking? Stay tuned to find out. You can listen to the show on Apple Podcasts and Podbean, or just visit rfgplaycast.com. On Twitter, I'm at RFG Playcast, and Rich is at The Single Banana. Most importantly, be sure to log on to RFGeneration.com to discuss the games with us and have a chance to get mentioned on the show. Thank you as always for listening, and now, on with the Playcast.
So, Sean, I got to tell you, I'm winning the battle of musical attrition in my house right now. All right. Explain. Well, as I was walking up the steps for this recording, there was Christmas music on in the background because everyone's trimming the tree right now. But I could hear my eight-year-old son singing Holy Diver by Dio. (laughs) 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 So I'm winning. Is that a Christmas song? Oh no! It, it's uh, yeah, it's the name of one of his albums and one of his more famous songs. Yeah, good stuff, man. After Ozzy left, Dio was actually the lead singer for Black Sabbath for two albums. I fully support the Dio Black Sabbath years. Two really solid albums. Now, is that the guy that was in the picture with your buddy that you showed me and and some of our friends, or is that someone else? No, um, my buddy Cameron, who actually has been on our show before, he's the guy that does our intro and outro music in the band Atma Weapon. He uh, just got a job at Gibson Guitars, and uh, he does customizations for them, and sent me a picture of uh, himself and uh, Tony Iommi, who is the uh, guitarist for Black Sabbath, and uh, you know the uh-huh. founder of the band. So, uh, yeah, man, really, really cool pick. You know, he said it to me. I was like, damn, dude, is that Tony Iommi? That is awesome. <laughs> yeah. I-, I can't imagine what it's like to meet that person. But secondly, can you imagine crafting a guitar for that person to play on stage? How awesome that feeling would be. That's just really, it's really sweet. That is a, a pretty cool concept to think about. And uh, my friends worked for a company called Vintage Vibe in New Jersey. And I used to hang out with the the owner. We were in a little band together. We were jamming for a while. And they made custom electric pianos. And they had a cool. quite the clientele with uh, their customer base was people like um well actually i don't want to name drop because i don't want to say something wrong but sure it was it was people like that like you know the big names in in rock and roll so Mm -hmm. uh that was pretty cool uh so yeah that aspect of creating something working on something and seeing uh some creative genius using it to (laughs) create their art is pretty cool yeah absolutely well sweet so let's get right into the concert cast no i'm just kidding we uh you got a few other things before that, right? Yeah, a few other things. Not much, but a few other things. Actually, we do we have any corrections this month? I don't think we made any mistakes last month. No. No <laughs> mistakes that are at Brent's pointed out. We've got a clean hole <laughs> from last month. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. You always got to drop something in there like that, right? You, you always try to make me blush right at the beginning of the show, man. No pun intended, <laughs> dropping it in there. Yep. No wiping oh, necessary good. for this episode. Excellent, excellent. All right, so let's move on into the concert cast then, shall we? Very good. Um, listen, mine is pretty epic, and I, I feel like I do this to you a lot where I'm like, No, I want to go last because what I have to say is really significant and it's going to blow everybody away. So if you want me to go first, I will. But this is like my best concert cast ever. Oh, wow. All right. You're you're really building it up. So we'll have to let you go second. (laughs) But, you know, what I figured out with this show anyway, I was kind of thinking about it the other day. And it seems like that always happens. We always have our one little special area like... I always have to go last on pickups, so it kind of evens out, you know? 
Yeah. And uh, it, recently, what are you playing? You've had to go last, and I know you're going to blow me away this month as well. But I did play a few games, so uh, yeah, I can't wait to get to that and talk about it. But before we do that, I do want to talk a minute about some shows that have popped up on my radar. I have not purchased tickets for these yet, but uh, very excited that two artists specifically are coming around, and both are on my bucket list. One is Ozzy Osbourne is coming next summer to um, a town near us, actually Charlotte, so just about an hour and a half away from here. And uh, I've always wanted to see Ozzy. I know when you hear him speak on the radio these days, I know he comes on XM all the time on Ozzy's Boneyard. It's like the guy can't hardly put a sentence together. Mm. And um, it's kind of sad, but at the same time, the dude can still sing. It's amazing. I, I don't know how he does it, you know, because usually when he's talking, he's got this bumbling uh, way of speaking. So, um, yeah, it, it's amazing, though. And he's actually just put out a new album, uh, and it's actually really good. I listened to it a few weeks ago. So, um, yeah, I'm excited to go to that. The kids are excited to go see Ozzy, and uh, Marilyn Manson's actually opening up for him. So uh, that should be pretty cool. I've seen Manson twice. Back in the uh, Mechanical Animals days, if you remember that album. Yeah. Yeah, actually a really good album. I've never been a huge Manson fan, but I really appreciate what he does. And he puts on a heck of a show, man. The theatrics are something to be seen. And I would say if you, if you really like him or not, you got to go to a show. It's quite the experience. Yeah, you know, my wife is a huge Manson fan. And she's... Yeah. Um, she may be bugging me to go to this one. So if uh, the tour comes through Austin, I might be uh, sharing this experience with you. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it's going to come through Austin. And uh, yeah, man, you should go check it out. You know, I don't know how much longer Ozzy's got with us, but uh, I think that's a something that's brought up probably on an annual basis. But uh, yeah, it's someone I would like to see. And I, I know my kids would really enjoy that experience as well. And then secondly... I heard that Scorpions is actually doing a tour right now in Australia. And earlier this week, I also heard that they're going to be coming back to the States. They're apparently on a farewell tour right now. And this is a band that's huge on my bucket list. I really want to see Scorpions. And uh, they're actually doing a stint in Vegas. So I'm hoping with that Vegas stint that they actually do a U.S. tour you know, maybe one last time. Uh, I'm not going to plan on going out to Vegas to see them, although that would be pretty awesome. Tickets would be outrageous, though, as they always are in Vegas. But uh, yeah, I'm just really excited to hear that they're still going and that uh, there's that possibility of a tour, you know? Now, for the Scorpions, correct me if I'm wrong, their one hit is The Winds of Change. Is that them? Dude, no, they've got tons of hits. Well, that's what I was going to... Okay, so let me backpedal a little. One of my like musical idiosyncrasies is like bands that are considered one-hit wonders that really ought not to be, or for example, like Semisonic with Closing Time. They have like three fantastic albums front to back. Like their, their uh, career as a band is not just Closing Time, and that's just one example. There's so many more. So what I was going to ask, how do, how do you look at like Scorpion's discography from someone who knows nothing about the metal of that era? You would be my go-to guy for like the hair metal 80s era. So can you elaborate on that? I guess? Yeah, no problem. Yeah, I mean, I think Scorpion's is up there with 
Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, as far as, you know, these European invasion metal bands. They're German, actually, which I really didn't know until a few years ago when I, you know, started to listen to uh, more Scorpions. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you said Winds of Change, which is a, a really great song. And that, you know, that's one of their big songs. Also, um, Rock You Like a Hurricane, which I'm sure you've heard as well. Oh, okay, yeah. Yep. Um, Big City Nights, The Zoo, Blackout, Still Loving You, and then No One Like You is probably their other big radio hit. Do you recall that one? I don't know. I don't know it by name. But... Okay, yeah. I don't, I don't want to go singing it right now, you know? <laughs> no, no one wants to hear that. I don't want to make anyone's ears bleed listening know. to this podcast. <laughs> but uh, they've got a huge discography, and like I said, I think they're up there with uh, some of the best metal bands of all time. And, uh, you know, it would be really great, especially after seeing Iron Maiden, seeing Judas Priest, just attack Scorpions onto that list. It would just be, like I said, a bucket list item. So, uh, yeah, excited about that news. All right, man. You built it up a lot. So what's this big concert cast news you have going on? Well, I got a I got a full plate that I'm going to explain a bunch of things. And I got some really good ticket scores. But I got to say, it's funny that we've gone from this show being like concerts we've gone to and ticket scores to now it's so-and-so announced the tour and next it's going to be I wish so-and-so would go back on tour and then it's going to be I wish this band would get back together and go on tour uh, until we're just you know dreaming up our shows that we want to go to which is really funny but I love music and I love talking about it so I am all for it uh, but yeah, I just I went to five shows and I got three sets of tickets wow. to talk about. So let's let's get right into it. Uh, so I saw Caro Caro Bonito. Uh, I've seen them before. We've had their music on the show before. The song Trampoline has been featured on this show. Love them. Love their music. Amazing show at the Mohawk. It was just great. A lot of great energy. It was fun. Being on the floor in the pit, like it wasn't crazy because it's pop music, it's sweet pop music, but people are still jumping around, dancing around, and it was just a lot of fun energy. It's just amazing. Now, we lucked out. We got really lucky because right after the show, like a week after the show where we saw Caro Caro Bonito, Sarah, the singer, got strep throat and had to cancel a bunch of a bunch of shows. So... I feel really bad for the people who missed out, but I feel very fortunate that we avoided that just barely. It was a month or two ago, so I'm sure she's fine now, but you know, wishing a speedy recovery and the, the wellness of everybody involved. So that was a great show, and again, always recommend that band. They're just fantastic. So next, uh, I talked about going to see Slater Kinney when I got the tickets, and I discussed my love of the band at length. You can hear that in our Saints Row episode. I really enjoyed this show. The drummer that they had, you know, nobody can replace Janet Weiss, but the drummer that they had did a, an admirable and beautiful job with all the drumming. She didn't try to copy exactly every single drum hit that Janet would do and at the same time didn't go off the rails and just do her own thing and that made, just made it perfect as perfect as it could be without being the original uh, drummer so my hat's off to her and you know like I said I had mixed feelings about this new album but they played the songs off the new album with gusto and you can tell they were proud of their work so 
I can't really fault them for coming out and, and doing it and just laying it all out there. They played a lot of classics and it was a wonderful show and it was so great to see them again after almost 20 years of the, the last time I saw them uh, at the turn of the century. So that was a great show and it, it was funny because you may remember when I when I saw Marina, she put up one of the songs as a vote and said, do you want me to play this song or this song and took a vote by audience cheer and I was saying how the song that I wanted ended up winning and getting voted for. Mm-hmm. And I had never experienced that out of the show and I, I thought it was very funny at the time. And at the Slater Kinney show, they did the exact same thing. <laughs> they said, do you want to hear a slower song or a faster energetic song? And of course, everybody's going to cheer for the faster energetic song. So then they go and name the songs they were going to choose. And the slower song was Good Things, which is actually one of my favorite Slater Kinney songs. And I forget what the other song was, but um, the other song get it, ended up getting voted for. So one of the singers, Corin Tucker, she mentioned that it was her birthday. And if the birthday thing had been addressed earlier in the show the crowd sang her happy birthday and all this blah 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 so they take this vote good things my song that i want loses but then corin tucker says well screw it it's my birthday let's just play both of them so i was like yes (laughs) (laughs) i was gonna say i thought you kind of got screwed over and got to see the opposite side of it but uh you got an even better treat right when they played both yes exactly so in both cases, I could see a demonstration of how democracy works really well if the, uh, the thing that you want gets voted for. Um, but but uh, Slater Kinney, great show, great band, and it was a good one. Next, Tiger's Jaw and the Menzingers. This was a show I went to with my friend Frank, who recommended the Menzingers to me. And Tiger's Jaw is already one of my favorite bands. So they were awesome. And Tiger's Jaw, I think... This is my second time seeing them. I think they were even better this time than, than the first time I saw them. The last time I saw them was one of those times where their newest album had just come out, so it was hard to kind of absorb the new stuff live because I barely heard it. But now that album is you know, way more familiar with it. So seeing all the songs live this time around, it, it was more mixed in well with their older stuff. And then... The Menzingers were a band that I wasn't super familiar with, and they didn't like become one of my favorite bands upon seeing them, but they just had a really great, energetic bar band, kind of rock and rollish sound. And uh, again, Rich, I would recommend them to you. I think you would really like them. Cool. And then this week I saw two shows. I saw the Get Up Kids on Thursday night. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is my third time seeing the Get Up Kids. I feel like... I'm just going to keep seeing them every time they come through. And it's the 20th anniversary of their album, Something to Write Home About, which I've said before is one of my favorite albums of all time. So they played a bunch of songs off of that. They also have a new album, which I was... I don't hate it, but I don't love it. And uh, they did play a lot of songs off of it, but they were good. You know, sometimes when you hear a new album from a band and I'm starting to realize that unless a band makes a totally terrible album it's gonna sound better live and most of the time it just makes me like it more it's it's happened like four or five times this year with bands like either I haven't had time to listen to the album and absorb it completely or I didn't have like the best first impression of it but 
when I saw the band live and heard the songs live, it made me like, oh, okay, I get it. It like clicked and I ended up really loving the album. Yeah, um, I don't remember who it was, but I was listening to uh, XM Radio and sometimes they have little blurbs by some of the artists that they play. And uh, somebody came on, it might have been Eddie Van Halen, and he just said something like, you know, everyone thinks that when you have a song... Uh, on an album that that's the final version of that song so when you get to a show they feel like you always have to play it that way but he's like i never feel like a song is ever finished and i'm always adding to that song or creating more with that song later on because i i I never feel like the process is ever done you know so i I think that's pretty cool and uh, sort of like you're saying i mean you might listen to an album and not really like it that much, but you might hear it live and maybe they've added some stuff to it or, you know, done something different with it and uh, it becomes um, more appealing, right? Yeah, totally. Um, that can happen a lot with older stuff because and a, a lot of bands like I like in the in the punk rock and indie space, like a lot of their older stuff is recorded very poorly. Mm-hmm. So then if you see them live, you know, in the present time and they just play at a very high fidelity and it makes the song sound way better. It it gives you an appreciation from that angle as well. Yeah. I think one of the things that always made a lot of people mad about Bob Dylan is that he would do songs in concert and have the same melody, but completely change all of the words in the song. I know there's like three or four versions of Tangled Up in Blue that he's done. And, uh, you know, I've experienced that before in going to his shows. And uh, it's just really cool, you know, when artists can do that. Some people appreciate it. Some people don't. You know, they just want to hear what's on the album. That's interesting. (laughs) At the Get Up Kids show, there was actually... The inverse of that on one song, uh, Matthew Pryor, the singer, came out and sang a song acoustically solo, and uh, the crowd was singing the backing vocals wrong, and they <laughs> <laughs> the, the the crowd sang this backup vocal part that's only supposed to be on the second verse. They sang it on the first verse, and he kind of he's going through the song, and he kind of he didn't stop the song, but he was like. All right, let's do that on the second verse, okay? <laughs> I thought great. that was kind of funny that he like called everybody out, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So, uh, yeah, that was a that was a good show. They're such a good band. And then Friday night, I saw Empath, Touche Amore, and La Dispute at the Mohawk. Empath is not a hardcore screamo band. They're more of a indie band with like a dance feel. They open the show. They're a really good band, and I've seen them before, uh, so I quite enjoyed their music. And then Touche Amore played second, and dude, uh, the pit that erupted like within the first note of them playing, I. I've been in mosh pits before plenty of times, and I've even seen Touche Amore live before, and I just wasn't prepared for this. I was like in the epicenter of this pit as soon as it started, and I was like, holy shit. Like, I, I was just, I was just getting destroyed instantly, and I had to like, I just fought my way out of it to the side and then backwards and then back around the periphery of it. Cause I didn't want to be like, I didn't want to like run away from the band, you know, right. like I want to watch the show and see the band, but I didn't want to get killed. So 
I managed to work my way around to the periphery. I always want to be in the periphery of a pit because then people will bounce off you and you just can push them back in the pit. And then if you feel like it, you can kind of jump in for a second and jump back out. Like, I just don't want to be in the middle of it because it just makes me feel uh, really claustrophobic. And I have gotten hurt like in recent memory uh doing these things so i gotta be careful you take the more sadistic approach right you like to sit on the outside and just knock the hell out of people that get bounced (laughs) into you no i don't mean (laughs) that i'm not like throwing elbows or anything but i'm just saying like if somebody comes (laughs) flying at you and you just kind of bounce off them and bounce them back in you know what i mean like oh yeah you know hip checking people not no no fists or elbows get thrown these bands like Touche and La Dispute, they're more uh, a positive vibe, more emotional of bands, even though they're hardcore bands, screamo bands. Again, it's not about throwing fists and elbows in a pit. It's just about this love and this energy that's in the room. It was it was really super intense and amazing. Like I said, I'm a huge fan of Touche and seen them before. La Dispute is like a revelation to me. I've heard their music before, but it didn't click with me until seeing them in person and seeing them perform this music. They're kind of like a post-hardcore band with more of a spoken word approach to the vocals. And they have some of the most intense lyrics you've ever heard. And Rich, I think you'd really key into this because you like that kind of stuff as much as I do. Yep. Um, they're, you know... It, some bands and like me as a musician some bands i'll see and i'll just say they're just from a songwriting perspective they're not doing much and i can get even snobby and say like i could write better than this like this band like they're so non-essential that they don't even deserve the stage that they're on kind of thing but then i'll see a band like la dispute and i'll say I will never in a million years be able to write lyrics this good. You know what I mean? And (laughs) it's like, they're just that type of band that's just like killing it on that level. And the lyrics will make you weep, dude. They're so intense and sad and painful. And to see the crowd knowing every single word and just going off, it's just, whoo, it was intense and crazy. A great, great show. Highly recommend all those bands. Awesome. All right, I'm done gushing about shows I've been to, and now let's get into the (laughs) ticket scores, and I'll keep this moving right along. So Sloan is a band that I spoke about actually when I was on the Retro Fandango podcast, because Kevin is a fan of this band, as is his wife, and they've uh, gone and seen them a couple times. Sloan is a band that I started listening to when I was in like the fifth grade. Uh, A friend of mine gave me a tape of their album twice removed he actually yes kids we said tape (laughs) yeah a cassette tape (laughs) um my friend's sister she was like the cool older sister and she gave it to me and she said i don't really like this but i think you will they sound kind of like the breeders and listening to that album uh they don't quite sound like the breeders like listening to it now and i don't i have some idea what gave her that impression but it doesn't matter because it ended up being like one of my favorite albums of all time i saw sloan in 1998 or 99 at maxwell's in hoboken new jersey and it was a great show uh and i've been wanting to see them ever since however The problem with Sloan is that they're one of those bands, to me, this is a personal opinion, that 
they made like their first, let's say, four albums that were each like very, not very unique, but each had its own flavor. Each was very creative and new and fresh. And it's like, what kind of sounds are they going to bring to this next album? But then they kind of clicked into this like Weezer, Jimmy World territory where they're just making the same album over and over and over again. And they have like 28 albums that are exactly the same thing (laughs) since, you know, the last time I cared about them kind of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. So Sloan is going on tour. But the reason I had to score tickets for this tour there's two reasons one is they hardly ever come to texas and they came to texas last year and i skipped it because of the aforementioned like 27 albums that i don't care about thing but this tour they're going on is the navy blues 20 it's either the 20th or 25th anniversary of their album navy blues which was actually their fourth album and the one that like the last one that i really really loved Mm -hmm. so they're touring that album and so i was like okay as much as I had this like pseudo regret about missing them last time they came around, now's my chance to see them and they're playing an album that I really love. So I went ahead and grabbed tickets for that and I'm really excited. All right, man. So I got two more ticket scores and they're both pretty epic. Nice. I'm not even sure which one to start with. Of course, I've seen a lot of bands once. I've seen many bands twice and I've seen a few elite bands three times. But I've never seen a band that wasn't like a friend's band four times. I scored tickets to see one of my favorite bands for a fourth time. And you'll never believe what band this is. New Kids on the Block. No, sir. (laughs) It's the one, the only, the magnificent Mannequin (laughs) Party. For the fourth time, bro. Man, you just can't get enough can you? (laughs) You don't even know, bro. You don't know what's in store for you, my friend. So, (laughs) uh, Mannequin, uh, you know what, is going on tour with Best Coast, who you might be familiar with. Yes, Um, yes, very much. Yeah, so that's a win-win in my book. I like Best Coast. I wouldn't say they're like my favorite band in the world, but I like their music when I hear it. And uh, to, to be able to see this again is just extravagant. And once again, for the millionth time, if you haven't heard that band or their new album, Patience, you need to hear it. It's my album of 2019, far and away the best album I've heard that came out this year. And uh, I can't wait to see them again. Now the next, <laughs> the, the, my last and final epic ticket purchase, and I'm sorry to the listeners for belaboring this so much. I hope it's somewhat entertaining. I'm going to see a band from Russia, hint, hint, can you guess? Uh, Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Nope, nope, nope. Think more in the <laughs> category. <laughs> What's a p- category? <laughs> I'll give you a hint. Bands with the name Pussy in the band. Oh name. yeah, yeah. It's the uh, it's the band that got incarcerated. That's exactly right. Pussy Riot from yeah, Russia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Are they touring? They're going on a short U.S. tour. They're coming to the Mohawk. I said, uh, "Come on, I just I gotta go for the historical value of it." Sure. I wasn't familiar with their music at all, but I looked up some of it, and it's just it's kind of poppy. I'm actually surprised. I thought they were kind of a. Uh, I thought they would be more like Bikini Kill, but they're actually kind of like Le Tigre. So <laughs> that's uh, really cool to me. And. Although I probably agree with them, uh, like they're a very political band and I probably don't agree with anything that I read about them that they stand for. I don't care. Like, I think that's pretty, pretty neat to see a a band that has that historical significance and uh, a rare U.S. tour by them. I think that's kind of cool. And I'm very much looking forward to that one and seeing what kind of craziness it's going to involve to see them live. All right, man. Sounds like some good upcoming months. You can be covered in. Ooh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the not safe for work podcast. Yeah, how do we segue out of that? Jesus. <laughs> yeah, how do you get out of talking about? Oh, <laughs> well, you can talk about PlayStation. It's almost as good as. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> You know it's not going to be as good as editing this show. (laughs) I think I saw you in my sleep, darling. I think I saw you in my dreams. You were stitching up the seams on every broken promise that you're Uh, looks like the PlayStation 1 is 25 years old. That is of December 3rd of this month. Sean, do you have any wonderful memories of playing the PlayStation 1? And uh, how does it age for you? Yeah, so we should. I think we should clarify. This is the Japanese release, right? The anniversary of the Japanese release. And But, I mean, more power to everybody who wants to celebrate. I'm, I'm all for it. The PS1, we did discuss this. If people want to look back at the... The last time Crabmaster 2000, Kelsey, was on the show, we discussed the PlayStation Classic and what games were on it and what games we would want to see on it. And I think that's that's a very good discussion if you like the original PlayStation. But for me, my memories of it, um, when I first got mine, I had a bunch of really crappy games. I had uh, a game called Time Commando, which I think I've mentioned on the show as a game that 
you know, YouTubers who do YouTube videos on bad video games, here's a freebie. Go play Time Commando and you can make a funny ass video on it because it's one of the most horrible video games I've ever played. <laughs> um, I had uh, Monopoly, which is actually not a bad port of Monopoly. I spent many hours playing this game by myself, if you can believe it. Uh, it had really like cool little animations and good music. So you could almost get into this dopey like trance state just playing it. And I had uh, Mech Warrior, which Mech Warrior is a good game, but a, a PS One, a PlayStation One port of it, not exactly the greatest game, and yeah. it didn't have like long, like you couldn't sit and play that game for hours. It was like dip in, blow up some robots, and you were kind of bored with it. Uh, but of course, it was when a friend of mine let me borrow Metal Metal Gear Solid, which still to this day is one of my favorite games, and we we did a podcast on it way back in the day, and I've beaten it like. 10 times is probably the game that I've replayed the most times. And I'm not really a big like replay games multiple times type of person. Also, that was one of the first games that I feel like I played start to finish and beat and rolled the credits and experienced the full story uh, as opposed to playing like Super Mario Brothers, which I never beat and, you you know, played for a couple hours and then die and give up and you know, go back to it. Besides things like Dragon Warrior or, or Escape from Monkey Island on the PC way back when I was younger, Metal Gear Solid was was like that, but different and took me to like a whole different level of what video games could be. So yeah, uh, hats off to the PlayStation 25 years anniversary, one of the best consoles ever created. Uh, Rich, I know you're a huge fan. So what, what are your thoughts on this celebration? Yeah, uh, my PS1 collection has gotten huge as of late, and you'll hear yeah. that when we do our pickups. I am really enjoy the PlayStation 1, and I guess my fondest memories of it, or you know, basic memory of it, is this is the first time that I ever really got away from the Nintendo. You know, Nintendo was so big, Super Nintendo, and instead of purchasing an N64... Uh, I got a PlayStation 1, and that's where my love affair for Sony and PlayStation came from and still exists to this day. I didn't get back into Nintendo until the Wii came out, and, uh, you know, I still haven't been the biggest fan of Nintendo since then. I still pretty much prefer Sony, but still a lot of love for Nintendo. Played a lot of PlayStation 1 in college, and uh, I think that... I didn't really get into RPGs much on the Super Nintendo, even though there's some great ones on there, and you know I really appreciate those now. But I think it was the PlayStation One that really brought that love back into my life after playing like Final Fantasy VII and Final Fantasy IX, just epic times in college, and uh, probably really affected my grades in college as well because uh, man, all we did was play PlayStation One, so. Uh, that dates me a little bit, but uh, those are my fondest memories, so happy birthday to the PS1. Nice. And something else I had on here, our good buddy Bill, member of the Collector Cast, has recently decided to go on keto. And, um, you know, we're all being very supportive. I think we have an app where we talk to each other and we just started a new category as a motivation category to try to get us all motivated, you know, back in on this uh, weight loss quest. And it's going to be pretty cool. It's you, uh, he and myself are uh, going to kind of work on this and do it together and just uh, share some recipes, share some ideas and uh, should be good for all of us. Yeah. He's already kind of sharing. He shared a good, uh, 
chicken wing recipe with an air fryer. Now, I don't have an air fryer, but my wife has bugged me to get one. Uh, So, Hey, Christmas present idea right there for her. Yeah. There you go. Hey, now. I like that. (laughs) Uh, Hey, this is for you. Did you get me some video games? No, I usually tell, well, there, there are some video games that are out there that she would probably be smart enough to get for me. She, she's actually good with that stuff. Um, That's cool. My wife is not. I have to make a list <laughs> and hope she doesn't get the wrong thing off eBay, which she did one year. She got um, infamously a copy of uh, Cliffhanger for the Super Nintendo when I was looking for it for the NES. So, uh, uh-huh. yeah, pretty funny. Okay. Um yeah, so he was sharing uh, some recipes in that thread uh, with me and Adam, and I hope it's motivational because I'm I'm woefully out of shape. I'm like sloppy fat right now, and I am not happy about it. So let's uh, let's do this thing. <laughs> yeah, and I think Adam's on board too because I know Adam had lost a ton of weight at one point. I think he had lost over fifty pounds or so, and uh, you know, kind of slacked off a bit, and is now wanting to get back on it. So yeah, it's great having a uh, you know, like you said, a nice support group uh, for this, and uh, looking forward to dropping several more pounds and uh, you know, getting to my ideal weight. So it's gonna be good. And the last piece of news, dude, you might have seen on Twitter. I finished the damn golf trophy. Yeah, it looks beautiful. Another masterpiece. I should start <laughs> selling these things. It might take you two years to get it, but uh, I could make some money on the side doing that. Now, who is that going to? Who won? Uh, Crabmaster won. So uh, I'm so having to ship, ship this thing to Canada. To Canada. Damn, <laughs> it's going to cost like yeah. $300. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm going to have to wait till the new year, till after Christmas to ship it. And uh, all the other participants will be receiving a cool golf medal. Um, all the people that were on the winning team. So, yeah. Oh, that's um, good. Yeah, yeah. did something for everyone for this one. So, uh, yeah, that's finally done. And so uh, we don't have to lambaste me for uh, not finishing that on the show anymore. That was certainly newsworthy for the news segment. Oh, absolutely. Uh, national video game news, definitely. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's for the people that follow. It's for the true fans. Mm-hmm. All right, man. So let's go into pickups. What you got? All right. Well, I'm happy to go first because of what we were discussing earlier. But I will say I got a lot of pickups and a lot of games played this month. So nice. let's, let's roll right into it. Now, I hope you don't mind. I want to talk about two Blu-ray pickups real quick. There was a Godzilla box set, the Showa era Criterion Collection box set. Came out, um, I think, earlier this year, but it was prohibitively expensive. I think it listed for over $250. After some time, it's gone on a lot of like 50% sales. And it was finally low enough that I pulled the trigger on it. I got it for just over 100 which is worthwhile to me because... That's your thing, man. Well, I love Godzilla, and there's a lot of movies on here that haven't been officially released in the North American region. So, and to be, you know, a good Blu-ray, good transfer criterion treatment and packaging and all that. It's funny because I got it, and it's this huge thing. It's the size of like a coffee table book. It's not just a Blu-ray that you can put on the shelf. It's 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 massive, which is appropriate because it's Godzilla. So I am just really stoked about that. And with that, I got also 
another topic that I discussed when I was on the Retro Fandango podcast was this movie called House from Japan, not not oh, yeah. the 1986. I have that on Criterion, actually. Okay, have you ever watched it? Yeah, it's messed up, dude. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I was curious. Uh, Man-eating piano? Yeah, it's yeah. messed up. <laughs> uh, it's actually, I heard about it and had like bootlegged it off the internet a couple months ago and watched it, and I was mesmerized by it totally blown away by it and i thought like how did i not have this in my life up until this point so <laughs> i had to go ahead and and buy the blu-ray of that and i watched it again and it's just it's so mesmerizing it's such an incredible film i love it and i feel like it's the kind of movie like i'm gonna end up what like sometimes i find myself like in the mood to watch it you know like it's one of those movies for me it's, it's so weird and bizarre it's almost like a it's almost like a live action Scooby Doo episode. It's so crazy, and I can't recommend it highly enough. And again, if you're looking for this movie called House, it's a little bit of a generic name. Look for the Japanese movie from 1977. So, yeah, I got those Blu rays. I thought that was a pretty cool because I don't buy a lot of movies physically. I'm perfectly fine being mostly digital, but there's certain things that I just I feel like I want to own and, and have in that format. So. Those are my scores, but let's let's move into video games. So, hey, before we move into video games, do you mind if I talk about a movie I saw last night? No, I'd love that. Go for All it. All right. So, um, it's Christmas time, and what better way to celebrate than watching Christmas horror films? And so, I watched one last night that I think you would like, Sean. It's a newer film, which typically with newer horror films, I, I've always been a little biased because I love eighty stuff, and uh, I've never really given them a lot of a chance. But I've got a friend that recommends them. He let me borrow this film. It's called Better Watch Out. And it's actually a fun film with a really demented twist and an ending that I just really, really loved. So if you're in the Christmas spirit to watch a horror film, check out Better Watch Out. I think it's a pretty good one. Cool. I will check that out. I bet my wife would be into that as well. Yeah. Oh, you know what? You got me going. Now I want to, I'm going to give a movie hot take, a movie recommendation. I watched uh, last week the 47 Meters Down sequel. I forget what the subtitle was for it, but you know the 47 Meters Down movies or shark movies? I think it's a really underrated franchise. The first movie had Mandy Moore in it, and I think it was actually a really good movie. The problem with it, and not to spoil too much, but I didn't like the ending a lot because they had a chance to go with this like gut punch of an unhappy ending, but they opted for the the more happy ending kind of. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, oh, you should have just you didn't stick the landing. You you should have went for it kind of thing. There's a second movie uh, and I'm annoyed because I can't remember the subtitle, but 47 meters down something something. And uh, it was also very good. I think this is a an underrated franchise. I think the movies are really good. And it's, of course, CGI, a lot of CGI, but it doesn't look that bad. I think it's pretty convincing and well done. So, Welcome to the first episode of the Filmcast. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, Kevin and Richard al- already do that. <laughs> True. It's our job to talk about video games, shall we? <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> okay. Moving around a little. All right. Uh, So I've been getting back into VR lately. I think VR for me is a winter sport. With PlayStation VR, the lights on the headset, it's easier for the camera to detect them if it's dark out. So in the wintertime when it gets dark at like 5 or 6 p.m., it's a lot better to 
do PSVR than when the sun is beaming into the house and it makes it, it makes the camera harder to detect the headset and the move controllers. So I've been playing a lot of VR and I got a game called Smash Hit Plunder. It looks like Minecraft and you kind of run around just grabbing stuff and smashing it and then just taking the loot out of it. It's, it's really stupid and fun. And one of the cool things about it is it's two players. So one person plays with the headset and the move controllers and the second player just plays on the TV with a controller and the person with the headset can see the other player running around the room as whatever character they are, a little goblin or an elf or something, just running around with a hammer smashing stuff. So it was pretty fun. And I played that for a little while with my wife, but it, you know, it didn't have a lot of staying power, but it was fun for like a half an hour of goofiness. Um, I got Gungrave VR, which is a port of a couple of PlayStation 2 games, I believe. I'm not sure if it's both of them, because I know I'm pretty sure there were two Gungrave games on PlayStation 2. And um, I know this has two game modes, but anyway, it's a VR game, and I only got it because it's like super cheap. It's like 10 bucks on Amazon. It's not known as being like this great VR experience. It's actually like a third-person game, so you actually... Even though you're in VR, you see your character in front of you, which is not common for a VR game. And so I got that. I got uh, the game Control on the PS4. I've heard good things about that game. Yeah, me too. And I, I love Remedy. They really are one of my favorite developers. I adore every single one of their games. And uh, I'm really late to the party on Control, but I do intend to play that very soon. I got Ace Combat 7. When, of course. When <laughs> prices started going down on things for Black Friday and Cyber Monday. Uh, Ace Combat 7 has been on my radar, pun intended, for a long time. But the price was it just wouldn't budge below $30 most of the time. And as much as I love that franchise, the games tend to go to dirt cheap after a while with few exceptions. Mm. So I was waiting for it to just drop enough to buy it. And over that weekend, it went to $15 everywhere. So I finally got it. That has a VR mode. And the VR mode in that is astonishing. It is amazing. And I am not prone to motion sickness, but this really made me feel like I was flying around in an airplane. And (laughs) even though it made me queasy, I played the entire VR mode in one sitting. And uh, I can't wait to do it again because it was awesome. Because you're a real man. Oh, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that's the that's the measure of a man playing the the whole VR mode of Ace Combat Seven in one sitting. I did it. I got Yakuza Kiwami Two on that same sale. It was ten or fifteen bucks, and I just have this like completionist mentality with my Yakuza games as far as collecting them all physically, which is funny because Yakuza Five there is no physical version of it, but. I wanted to grab Kiwami 2 while it was at a cheap price. And my last Black Friday deal was I got Starlink for the Switch, which is that game. I don't know too much about it, but it's a Toys to Life game that comes with, on the Switch version, comes with a bunch of Star Fox stuff. It has a little Fox McCloud figure and a R-Wing model, and it just, it looks really cool. So I figure for 10 bucks, can't really go wrong. I also got Super Hot VR. Oh, yeah. I played the standard version of the game last year, and I really loved it. So I wanted to get the VR version, 
and I was waiting on it, but I ended up playing it at a friend's house, which I'll explain in What Are You Playing? And uh, I was like, oh, I got to get this game for myself. I got to own it. So I imported uh, the European version because I don't think there's a North American physical version. So I got that. And I got from a coworker of mine a Game Boy Micro, which is nice. really cool. He just said that he had it. He said he didn't want it. I told him I would buy it from him. He brought it into work and just said, here, you can have it. I think the screen is too scratched up to ask you for money for it. And he didn't have a charger for it. So he insisted to just give it to me, which is cool. And uh, the thing about the screen being scratched is that it wasn't that scratched up at all. And those things have changeable faceplates. You can just buy a new faceplate for it. So... Uh, that was really nice of him. So jokes on him. Well, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't like, oh, I have this thing, I love it, but it's just scratched up and there's nothing I can do about it. It wasn't that kind of situation. I think he just didn't like the thing, wanted to get rid of it, but didn't feel right because he thought it was scratched. So I got a Game Boy Micro. It is pretty cool, even though <laughs> the screen is really, really small. It's like a one and a half inch screen or something like that. It's so friggin' tiny. It's hilarious. Uh, I did grab a charger for it, so it's all good to go. And uh, it's really uh, fueling this uh, another completionist mentality of mine, which is to own every version of every Nintendo handheld and I think if I looked at what they've released and what I have, not including like special editions or whatever, I'm probably more than halfway there. And wow. I'm thinking about that as a possibility. That's cool, man. I've decided I want to try to collect all of the Game Boys, Game Boy Colors, Pocket Game Boys um, that were released in North America. So uh, definitely uh, going to be on the lookout for those soon. Awesome. Well... The last thing I got was a nice surprise in the mail from you, Rich. And <laughs> so it had the Famicom version of Dragon Quest, which is awesome because uh, that's a game we did a podcast on. And it's one of my favorite games of all time. And I did not own the Famicom version of it. So that's cool. I wasn't sure. So, yeah, no, I actually had I had or i have it but i'm trying to get rid of it i have like two and four on the super famicom and a couple other ones but i don't have the original one and it's funny because i'm trying to actually kind of clear out some of my famicom and super famicom but if but when you sent me the original dragon quest i can almost distill that collection down to just having that because <laughs> yeah i mean i have nothing to play Famicom cartridges on my Retron 5 is I actually brought it to work so we could play it on our breaks and stuff yeah. and uh, I just don't have anything hooked up and I'm never going to be like into that world again I don't think so just to have an original Dragon Quest Famicom is like a something to look nice on the shelf it's pretty absolutely cool. it was just an art piece yeah yeah so you also sent uh, what was it? Wario World 2? I, I didn't write down yeah. the, each game, but it was Wario World 2 for the Game Boy. Mm -hmm. And um, 2 Extreme for the PlayStation 1, <laughs> which we've talked about. Yep, I remember you saying that that was a childhood favorite, you know, yep. and so I had to put that in there. Yep, and then you sent what is 
it's funny because it's it's one of my favorite things, but I don't know exactly what it is because I'm afraid to open it. It's like I have a, no idea what it is. Yeah, <laughs> it's <laughs> I think it's a figure. It's a Godzilla figure, and more importantly, it's a Shin Godzilla figure. And Shin Godzilla, you know, besides the original Godzilla movie, is uh, my favorite Godzilla movie and one of my favorite movies of all time. So I have yet to pop that box open, but I I will. I you know I yeah good. I'm just admiring it so far. Yeah, I got something for Krabby and his kids one time and sent it up to Canon. And he's like, oh, I'm not opening the box. Like, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was some Mega Man stuff, you know, and it's like these like little surprise boxes and he refused to open them. And I was like, oh, man. Like, I, I wanted to know what was inside of them. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Selfish reasons. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. But yeah, that was a nice a nice surprise. Thank you so much for sending that stuff along. Absolutely. It was it was really cool. Uh so yeah, that's it for my pickups. I actually, and believe it or not, I have a lot more stuff coming in. I've been doing a lot of selling on eBay and buying bull crap that I don't need, so it's it's been fun. <laughs> so what about you? What kind of pickups do you have this month? Well, for Thanksgiving, I went out of town, so I definitely took advantage of some of the Black Friday sales and got to visit a lot of game stores that I don't usually get to frequent. My wife took the kids down on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving that morning. Uh, she had taken the day off, but I had to work that day, so I got to trail along in the afternoon and fight all of the Thanksgiving traffic, but somehow managed to stop at two game stores on the way, way home, you know? Of course. Uh, for the DS, I picked up a game that I wasn't really actively looking for, but I'd seen it a few times and was very interested in it. You know, I've played Hotel Dusk, uh, played 999, and, you know, some of Trace Memory. And so I really enjoy those types of games. So I picked up Flower, Sun, and Rain for the DS. Is this a title you're familiar with? Yeah, I've heard. Is that the one where you hold the DS? It's a visual novel, right? And you hold the mm -hmm. DS yeah, kind of, sideways yeah. like a book to play it? Yeah, I'm not sure yet because I haven't started playing it. So, uh, you know, just kind of read the back cover. And it's supposedly it's like a Groundhog Day sort of thing where you're trying to defuse a bomb and you just have to keep doing it and uh, doing the right things until you get through it and are able to defuse the bomb. So, uh, you cool. know, that's, that's what the back says. So I thought that's kind of neat. I picked up Bionic Commando on the Game Boy, which is a tough title to find. Got a good deal on that. Complete copy of Battlemaster. Sorcerer's Apprentice, and Stormlord for the Sega Genesis. For the PS4, I got Last of Us Remastered recently. Yeah, that's one that I really want to play. Put it in the other day after I finished Hellblade and was going to start playing it, and the disc did not work. So uh -huh. I tried the reset that I told you about, and the bad thing is, is I bought this from out of town, I uh, paid $10 for it, actually, at a pawn shop, but I can't really return it. So, uh, yeah, I picked up a second copy of that recently for a decent price, and uh, second copy works, so, uh, you know, pretty stoked about that. I also picked up one of my favorite games that was ported to the PS4 from the PS1. That's Medieval. I got that for a good price. It's one I was waiting to drop below 20 bucks, And I think GameStop was having some sort of sale, and I grabbed that, along with Overcooked 2 which is a favorite game of Kevin's. I know he really likes that game, and my wife mm -hmm. enjoy playing that together. Have you played that yet? Still have not played it, no. I'd say give it a try, man. I think you guys would enjoy playing it together. It's a, it's a really fun game, and uh, one of those where my wife and I, like, 
kind of get aggravated with each other, but at the same time really enjoy it a lot, you know? Mm. And uh, a lot of times we'll complete a level and get to the next level, but we don't get three out of three stars. And my wife's like, we got to do that again until we get three out of three. <laughs> so for the Super Nintendo, I picked up Big Sky Trooper and Frantic Flea. Uh, the copy of Frantic Flea had marker all over it, all over the label, all over the front and everything. And I'm not sure if I mentioned this on the last show. Did I mention on the last show that my kid drew all over our walls in permanent marker? I know you told me that. I can't remember if it was on the air or not, if it made the cut. But yeah, I I remember you saying that. (laughs) So anyway, what we learned to get the marker off was to use cheap hairspray. And you could put that on there and the marker come off. Well, I decided, hey, why not try it on a Super Nintendo cart, right? Yeah. I did it. It works, man. Good stuff. Interesting. Yeah, I actually like it better than using a dry erase marker. To me, it works a lot better and it comes off very well. You have to spray it a few times and you have to just keep rubbing it, but eventually it does come off. So yeah, there's a little tip for cleaning games. And now my copy of Frantic Flea looks brand new. It's awesome. I wish I would have done a before and after picture and posted it on Twitter, but uh, just kind of neglected to do that. Well, I saw your after picture and it looked beautiful. Um, Have I ever told you my secret weapon for marker and gunk and (laughs) shit? No, I don't think so. I actually use lighter fluid. I do too. Rosinol lighter fluid, just a little bit on a wad of paper towel. Uh, Usually Mm -hmm. gets most things uh and it does and gunk and marker and stuff off of uh, most surfaces it works really good yeah and it dries really quick it's got a smell to it but it evaporates really quickly yeah and goes away that's yeah absolutely man i use that on everything but i found that with permanent marker it doesn't work as well you you can still kind of see the faded marker so that's what i tried first and then i went with the hairspray when it wouldn't come up really good And uh, yeah, man, the hairspray really, really works. Cool. So the next things I picked up were some PS1 games. As a kid, I played so much Ridge Racer Revolution. And one of the sites, PS1 Collectors of America, where I typically buy games, there was someone on there selling the original Ridge Racer, Ridge Racer Revolution, and Rage Racer for like 20 bucks shipped. And so I was like, man, no brainer. Pulled the trigger on that and then found a copy of R4 locally for about half the price for what it goes for on eBay. So I was able to get all four Ridge Racer games for the PlayStation 1 this past month. And, uh, you know, I can't wait to dig into them. I'm not a big racing game fan, but this is just a series that's, you know, really dear to my heart. And I played a lot when I was a kid. I also picked up a copy of the RPG Guardians Crusade, the local store for a great price. Machine Head, which I had never heard of or played, but it looks like a kind of dungeon crawler, almost shooter type of game. And so I'm really interested to check it out. I picked up Pandemonium 2 last month. And while I was out doing Black Friday shopping, I found a copy of the first Pandemonium game. So I grabbed that. And then on one of the collector sites, I think it was Filthy Game Rooms, a guy had a copy of Strider 2 and Codelka for sale. He had them for like a screaming price. I got both games for under what I could get Strider 2 for on eBay. So I 
had to pull the trigger. It was like a no brainer. I'd been selling a lot of stuff on eBay and, you know, I had the funds in my account. So I was like, yeah, these are two games that I've got on my wish list. So, you know, I'm going to go ahead and get those. Uh, Strider 2 is cool because it's a double disc. It has Strider 2 on one disc and it actually has the original Strider game on the other side. So, uh, really, really happy to pick that up. And then I picked up a copy of Jungle Hunt locally for the ColecoVision. Uh, this is a game that's not common at all. And Coleco is one of those things where I would love to have a complete collection, but I don't actively seek it out. If I go to a store or something and see something that I don't have in my collection, I typically buy it unless the price is outrageous. And so I was able to pick that up locally, and now I'm down to only 43 games left to have a complete ColecoVision set. And then the final video game that I picked up was for the Sega CD, and that is a copy of what our friend Crabmaster says is the best RPG on the Sega CD, and that is They. Uh, are you familiar with this game? I've heard of it. It's one that I've heard good things about, and uh, I've heard one of the better games on the system, so I was really happy to pick that up for what I consider a good price. Got it at a local store. Looked like it had been sitting there a while, and there wasn't really a price update on it. So, uh, yeah, I was able to uh, get a good deal on it. And then finally, two weeks ago, uh, I had been working on a deal for a pinball machine, and a neighbor of mine had a friend that he was growing up with, and they had a pinball machine in their basement that never worked. Well, that friend's parents were selling their house and moving to the beach. And so he asked them if they wanted to sell the pinball machine, and they said, just come pick it up. You can have it for free. What? Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, I got a Dolly Parton pinball machine from 1979. Wow. That is <laughs> for cool. For free. Now, is that a rare and sought after piece or is that a how does that rank in the pinball collector's world? I would say it's tougher to find. It's not a super common machine, but it's not one that a lot of people are seeking out or very desirable. Though it is a good game. It has great layout. It's actually a Bally machine, which I'm, I'm really fans of um, early 80s, late 70s Bally games. So I'm going to fix this one up and, uh, you know, get it going. I wanted to mention that I actually did give the guy 100 bucks, And the reason I did that is because... From what I understood from my friend who hooked the deal up, they were very charitable people. And I gave him a hundred bucks. I said, here, just donate this to whatever charity you would like to. And he said, what charity would you like to donate it to? And I said, well, how about St. Jude's? So a uh, hundred bucks went to St. Jude's for the cost of this machine, if you will, that really didn't cost me anything. But, you know, it's holiday season and, uh, you know, why not do something nice, right? That's awesome. That's it, man. Those are my pickups.
right, man. Well, let's get into games played. I'm assuming I should go first again, Sean. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I was just really passionate about that concert cast and all my scores. And uh, <laughs> it just dawned on me that I've done that a lot to you. And I don't, you know, it, it, it might not be good you know like if i'm always well, I'm like, super pissed about it obviously no it's just i don't want to be every time saying what i have to say is better let me go last you know what i mean that's the, <laughs> yeah. i was just afraid of that i do have a lot of games that i played though if that's what you're asking yes absolutely yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right so let me go first something kind of dear to my heart and special to me as everyone that listens to this podcast knows, I've got three kids. Uh, I love them all to death. They're all very, very different. But my three-year-old is an amazing video game player. It's, it's unbelievable. People watch him play the arcade machines out in my garage, and they're just totally blown away. Uh, his favorite games, he loves Mario Brothers. He loves Contra. And uh, he loves Turtles in Time. So I decided, okay, well, Contra and Turtles in Time are games that we can play together. So I put in the 30-man code for Contra, and we actually beat that game without any continues. Myself and a three-year-old. <laughs> that's that's awesome. That's really cool. I, I can't do that. So. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of the key is, I mean, everyone knows I'm a really good Contra player. I can clear Contra with a no-death run. You know, it's just something that I played a lot growing up and just so familiar with the game. I played it so many times. When you lose all 30 of your men, you can steal men from the other player. <laughs> so he was continually stealing my men. I w I'm not saying that he made it with all 30 men, but we still beat it without continuing, which I think is pretty cool. He's got some skill, man. He's he's really good, uh, you know, with the controller and just loves video games. And then we also beat... Turtles in Time yesterday, actually. So he loves Turtles in Time. He and my eight-year-old son beat it together the day before. He wanted to play it again. He wanted me to go up to the game room and play it with him. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of getting to that part of my life where my kids are really enjoying this collection as well, and I can share it with them, and it's just... It's just awesome. I mean, I love sharing it with my peers and people that grew up with this stuff, but to pass it on to another generation is really, really great, you know? Yeah, that's awesome. And Turtles in Time is such a great game. Yeah. Uh, one of the best couch co-op games on the Super Nintendo. So that's that's awesome. Yeah, and, uh, not overly hard, not overly easy as well. Yeah, so it's good kind point. of the perfect game. Yeah. And then one of my other pickups for this month, I had gone out to one of my local stores, and I mentioned that it picked up R4, the fourth Ridge Racer game. And while I was there... The guy said, oh, I got these Game Boy games that came in. You want to check them out? And I was like, uh, sure, sure, I'll look at them, you know, because I like Game Boy stuff. And I was looking through them, and this one popped up, and it was a Japanese cartridge. Now, I could tell it was a bootleg cartridge because it was blue. And so I, I was like, eh, I know it's not real, but I was like, what is this game? And he said, it's a game called Banishing Racer. And I had just remembered that about a week ago, I had seen a video on YouTube about Japanese Game Boy games. Hmm. And that this was one of the top games on that system, but it was a few hundred bucks. Well, I bought that copy of Ridge Racer 4, and I was like, hey man, I'm interested in this. He said, well, it's not real. I can't sell it, so how about I just give it to you? Right. So he gave me a copy of this game. Turns out it's real. <laughs> no, it's not. Oh, okay. 
<laughs> maybe the board is who knows you know i haven't checked that out yet but yeah. um Anyway, I'm just glad to have it because I'm glad to be able to play it. The screen scrolls automatically, so it's like Moon Patrol meets Super Mario Brothers. Oh, yeah. Familiar so like an Moon Patrol? endless runner. Yeah, Moon Patrol is one of my all-time favorites. But when cool. I was in a band, uh, the band I was in, Annoying Customer, we used to play the music. One of our songs was the music from Moon Patrol. That's awesome, yeah. man. Yeah. So the screen continues to move, but it's a platformer like Super Mario Brothers would be, and the car has like this cute little like anime face on it, and the other cars have like scouring anime faces on them, and you actually jump up and you jump on them and you just bounce off of them like you would like with Mario on like you know Goombas or something like that. So it's a neat little game, and uh, while I wouldn't encourage anybody to go out and spend this much money on it, if you could emulate it just to check it out, I think you'd have a lot of fun with it. It's a really cool game. And then the final thing that I've been playing recently, as I mentioned, I put in the disc for The Last of Us and was going to start that, but the disc wasn't working, wasn't reading correctly. And so I had a stack of games to decide from that I'd brought down from my game room. And one of those games was Moonlighter. I've talked about this on the show before because it was one of my pickups several months ago. But uh, Moonlighter is a Zelda-like. It's um, a, a dungeon game, but it also reminds me a bit of the game Fatal Labyrinth, if you're familiar with that, on the Genesis. Yeah. And how it reminds me of that is that every time you go into a dungeon, the dungeon changes. You know, you have the same enemies and everything, but the layout changes. And so what you do is you go into a dungeon, and then you can go through this portal that will take you to the second part of the dungeon and then the third part of the dungeon. And then finally you get to like a boss fight. But the really neat thing about this RPG is that it has a bartering mechanic in it where you have a shop and at night you go into the dungeon to raid the dungeons and bring it back loot. And then the next day you set up all the loot on your tables and you have customers that come in and buy things. And then you use that money to improve the town that you live in to bring in more customers, more visitors to the area, and also buy new weapons and items and things like that. So it's a really, really neat mechanic. With the bartering, you have to set your own prices. So the customers will like get this smile on their face. If the price is good, they'll get a frown and walk away and not buy it if it's bad. And then there's this other one where if you price it too low, their eyes light up with gold coins. <laughs> and they totally like take advantage of you in the sale. But then next time you realize that you got to raise the price, right? So uh, it's a really neat game. It tracks all of that for you. So that you know you're you're actually getting the right prices as you go, and um, it's just really neat. There's crafting in it. There's uh, some bag storage things where, like, and you're going into the dungeon, it'll say, "Okay, wherever you place this one in your bag, it has to be either at the top or the bottom of the bag." Or when you teleport back to the town, which you can do in this game, the item to the right, the left, up and down, or diagonally wherever the arrow is pointing, that will disappear from your bag. So you have to manipulate your bag and lay out stuff. As I'm playing the game, more and more stuff's getting added to it, more and more nuances. One part, I got a mirror in my bag that you could put items into that you picked up and just get a nominal amount of coins for that stuff so that you could keep continuing in the dungeon and get money for that loot without taking it to your store and selling it. 
graphically, it's from the SNES uh, Genesis era. I'd say, you know, check it out. It's a cool game. It's on PS4, and it can be had for fairly cheap. That sounds really awesome. Can you say what the title is one more time? Yeah, it's called Moonlighter. Okay, yeah. Which makes sense, like you're moonlighting and going into these dungeons yeah. and, you know, getting these items and stuff. So, uh, And that's the name of your store, The Moonlighter. When I started playing, I was like, this is something I think Sean would really like. Yeah, so, yeah, man, cool. check it out. And that's it. Awesome, man. Well, as I said, I got a bunch that I've been playing, so I'll roll right into it. Uh, the first thing I played, it's, man, we haven't recorded in a while because I'm looking at these games. It's like I feel like I played this forever ago, but uh, it's Heroes of Ruin on the 3DS. It's like a Diablo dungeon crawler, and it's really good. If you have the means, you can play it online. Uh, I'm sure nobody's playing it online, but you can actually play it locally online, multiplayer. I'm not sure what that would entail, how many copies of the game you need or whatnot. Obviously, more than one 3DS, but I don't know how all that works. I just played it solo offline, so... It's pretty good, though. You just go dungeon to dungeon, leveling up, looting, min-maxing your character, buying and selling, and uh, it was really fun. Highly underrated game. I wouldn't call it a hidden gem because it's not hidden, nor is it a real gem, but it's it's only sitting at like a 60 on Metacritic, and it's a good-ass game. It's really underrated. The next thing I played was Amazing Spider-Man 2 on the Wii U. I talked about playing the first one a couple months ago, and I wanted to go right on into the second one. Second one is better than the first one in that there's more diversity in the story and missions of the game. Whereas in the first game, I felt like it was just go to this Oscorp lab and do this thing, then go to a different Oscorp lab, and they all look the same. In Amazing Spider-Man 2, the missions are more colorful and varied, and there's different boss battles. The story's a little bit more interesting. And they have this, like, wannabe Mass Effect thing where you do these dialogue scenes, but there's no dialogue choices. You just go through, like, four different dialogue things, but they're not questions, and there's no choice involved. It's a real trick, you know what I mean? Like, I thought it was, like, oh, my God, is there, like, a Mass Effect dialogue tree in this Spider-Man game? But it's it's not like that. It's actually just a cutscene where you press a button to say the next thing, so... That was a little bit of a tease, but it did make the story a little bit more interesting. The only thing I would say is if you want to play this game, it's on many different platforms besides just the Wii U. It ran really nicely on the Wii U, though. Um, it is um, a very short game. That's what I'm trying to say. It's sh- it's short. If you mainline the story missions like I did, you'll be done in like five or six hours. If you go around and do side stuff, it'll be longer. It isn't a, an open world game. But don't pay a lot of money for this. It's like a 5 or $10 experience in my book. Uh, next, as I said, I've been getting up into VR. And I want to say I played an Oculus Rift at a friend's house. And I was a little nervous because I've heard so much about how PC is so much better than consoles in every single way. And especially in VR, the VR rigs for PC are, of course, so much more powerful and so much better than anything you could do on a measly home console. But much to my surprise, it was a very similar experience. And as much as I have want for any opportunity to talk or downplay PC master race culture, I was 
pleasantly relieved or uh, whatever that it was just very similar to PSVR on a PlayStation Pro, which was cool and neat and a little bit of a relief. In a way, I was afraid that I would be so blown away that I would be like, I have to have this. I have to buy a $4,000 PC with a VR rig and everything. You know what I mean? So yeah, uh, I went into it and played some games that you can't get on PS4 for sure. But I didn't come away from it thinking like, wow, this is so next level and so different from PS4. So that was kind of neat. Good to know. But going back to my my own VR experiences, I played Doom VFR. Uh, VFR, the F stands for <laughs> A really... <laughs> it's based on uh, the Doom 2016 game that we played for the, for the podcast. It's that same world that's actually a prequel to that game, I believe. And you just kind of go around doing little tasks and then shooting waves of monsters uh, in VR. And it was awesome. I played River City Girls, which was my article this month. I wrote a review of River City Girls. It's a very good game. I played it on the Switch uh, via my physical copy that I got from Limited Run. But it's a great game. It's a 2D sprite-based beat-em-up. The pixel art is beautiful. The music is great. The RPG elements and adventure game elements, like the economy and the experience and the stats and accessories and items. And I wrote about all this stuff in my article. And it's not a, just a regular old beat-em-up. And I use the comparison to Turtles in Time in my write-up that... I thought I was just going to run in and start punching things and be able to finish the game, but that's not how it works. You really got to tweak everything as you go. And every morsel of HP that you have matters, you know what I mean? And when you get punched, it's, you can feel the pain because <laughs> you might be it, like, they charge you money to continue the game. And so you can, you can get wiped out of all your money if you're not good and you keep getting defeated. So it's it's a really good game and it has a lot of depth to it. Yeah, I was wondering if that might be something that maybe I could play with the kids because beat 'em ups are really good games for us to play together because they they seem you know control wise easy for them. Yeah, I think you guys could do that. I think it's pretty safe for the kids. I think there might be some like PG thirteen uh, jokes in it. Well, it'll go over their heads. Yeah, anyway, I don't think probably. there'd be anything too too vulgar or anything like that. Next, I did play a PC game. It's called Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines. This is like the ultimate hipster PC game. It's a legendary game. There's all these like YouTube think pieces on it, how good it is. And the development of the game is very fascinating. Activision uh, really bungled the launch of the game. They used Valve's engine that was used in Half-Life 2. And Valve wouldn't let them release the game before Half-Life 2 came out. So Activision made the developers release Vampire the Masquerade on the same day that Half-Life 2 came out. So it just got, you know, buried because Half-Life 2 was, of course, a big deal at the time. Oh, yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of history on that and people can explain and elaborate on that a lot better than I can. But it's very, very fascinating. And having just played um, The Outer Worlds, uh, a lot of the talent that worked on the outer worlds, like Tim Kane, he worked on, he was part of the three person development team that made Vampire the Masquerade Bloodline. So that that's really cool to be able to go back and play that game. And 
It was everything I hoped it would be. And it was also at times a huge pain in the ass. And I had to resort to cheats a lot to get through uh, some of the parts. But from what I understand, that's part and parcel of playing the game. And a lot of people do that because parts towards the end are not phoned in, but they were so crunched for time that they weren't as quality as the earlier parts of the game. So definitely worth playing. And, you know, it's a game from 2004. And when you get it from GOG, it has, uh, I don't know about, it doesn't, may not have the most recent, but it's actually the fan patched version of the game, along with the original unpatched version of the game, which is really cool. So it's more stable and playable and everything. And I think I can give a shout out to uh, the Quick Save Club. Uh, they're going to do this game next year in January or February. Just look at their schedule. So when they play it, I'll definitely go on their forum and chime in on it because I, I really enjoyed my experience. Uh, next, I played a red-hot Hideo Kojima game. <laughs> it's called Zone of the Enders, The Second Runner, VR. <laughs> uh, which actually, the second game really had nothing to do with Hideo Kojima. I just thought it would be funny to say that. This is a mech anime type of game where there's a lot of story, a lot of anime cutscenes, and some gameplay. But the gameplay, of course, in VR, being in your own mech, like, I'm a huge fan of uh, Evangelion and the mechs in this game. They don't look super similar, but they're in the same vein, like more smooth contours and more human body looking mechs rather than like big bulky squarish kind of mechs. So this is a really fun game uh, and pretty short experience. I beat it in under five hours and a lot of that is just watching anime and listening to cutscenes. but it was pretty fun, pretty cool. And it's a cheap game if you want something to play on PS4 VR. Next, I played Quantum Break, which is a Remedy game, and it's an Xbox One and PC exclusive. As soon as I played this, this is why I bought Control, because I was like, all right, now I'm caught up. I'm, I may be late to the party on Control, but I'm super late to the party on Quantum Break, because it came out like with the launch of the Xbox One. So it is a third-person shooter where you have like time powers, so you can reverse time and pause time and create shields where bullets won't go through but you can like create this time vortex around an enemy and shoot like a full clip of bullets into them and then when the vortex disappears like all the bullets hit them at once it's it's really cool like you just run around like an idiot with these powers and it's awesome and fun and one of the weird cool things about this game is that they produced a tv show to play in between the events of this game so there's like I forget what it is, five or six TV episodes that you watch as you're playing the game. And each episode has two versions based on a choice that you make at the end of each chapter. And then you watch a TV episode that plays out what you did and what's coming and what the kind of side characters are doing. It was, it was really good. I, I mean, I loved it. I thought it was awesome. And uh, it's one of those things that's like, it's an experiment and yeah, maybe the execution wasn't like a thousand percent perfect, but it was really cool. And I'm like, I'm glad they did this and tried this. And, uh, like I said, it made me feel like, okay, I must play control like very soon. Maybe not back to back with this game. Cause I'm, I think they're pretty similar, but that's, that's why I went and grabbed that game. Yeah. Well, my uh, question is, um, how was Scott Bakula in this game? 
Uh, <laughs> he is not in it that I know of. Uh, yeah, this isn't uh, Quantum Leap is what you're thinking of, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but there is one of the things of the game was to have um, a few A-list actors in it. I'm so naive when it comes to like mainstream a-list actors that I don't even know their names, but one of the guys I think in the Lord of the Rings. Um, but yeah, you, people who you would recognize when you saw them. It was almost like Until Dawn with like a bunch of recognizable faces, but maybe you wouldn't be able to name each right. and every person yeah. that was in it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And next, I was just kept rolling with the Xbox One. I played Halo 5 Guardians. Halo to me is kind of like Gears of War. I like all the games and I just play them uncritically and indiscriminately and I like them a lot, you know, and I don't worry. Like I've watched pretty deep analyses of all the Halo games from people who like care about first person shooters and squad mechanics and all this other stuff. And I'm just like, I just want to go in there with an assault rifle and shoot these dumb aliens. Like if it's fun and loud and colorful and bombastic, I'm cool with it. So I mean, I liked it. So, <laughs> so Halo 5. Those are all the games I finished uh, since our last recording. And I'm currently playing Hyrule Warriors on the Wii U. And oh, I played some of that a few months ago. Yeah. Ooh, I love it. I think it's awesome. Yeah, it's fun. And it's one of the first games that I've noticed that the amiibo functionality kind of abuses the game. Because oh, okay. I mean, I own four Amiibos, and the first time I played, I put one on the gamepad, and it said, you got an Amiibo present, one rupee, (laughs) and it's like, (laughs) okay, this game has an economy where you're dealing with thousands, if not tens of thousands of rupees in the menus and when you're doing stuff, so it's like one rupee is almost nothing. Uh, but since you could do Amiibo presents every day, I started doing it every day, and then the next time I got like some rare weapon and then i got fifty thousand rupees and then i got another fifty thousand rupees so i'm like oh okay this is how this works so now i'm like (laughs) i'm making sure every single day to log in even if i'm not going to play the game log in and tap all those amiibos (laughs) and uh i even uh i went on amazon and bought a bunch of cheap (laughs) cheap amiibos (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to bolster because you know this isn't the the only game that's like this there's got to be other ones that have something like this so oh yeah yeah smash brothers is big and you know in yeah, it. and yeah. uh, i just picked up the uh simon belmont one they did oh that's it cool awesome yeah cool. yeah i think they're doing richter very soon as well so i'll pick that up and then i also want the bayonetta one the first bayonetta they did one for bayonetta one and yeah. bayonetta two but uh, the first one looks awesome. I like the long hair Bayonetta better than the short hair. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah, I have um, I have Marth from Fire Emblem. I have Princess Peach. I have the Bowser Skylanders amiibo, which is a Skylander and an amiibo, oh, which wow. is pretty okay. neat. And then I have uh, Blathers from Animal Crossing. Uh, the Animal Crossing ones are the cheapest ones. So that's actually a few of the ones I picked up recently that are on their way in are from animal crossing because they're super cheap but i kind of don't care what they are as long as i'm just getting those crazy bonuses in my game yeah so uh i'm playing that i love it by the way it's uh 
it's a Musou game, which means it's nothing like a Zelda game. It's you are running around fighting thousands of enemies on this huge battlefield with objectives like flying at you, coming at you constantly. Again, it's kind of like in River City Girls, you can't just run around punching and kicking and hoping to win. In Hyrule Warriors or in any of these, like Fire Emblem Warriors or the original Samurai Warriors, all those games... You have to pay attention to what's going on. There's bases that if too many of them get conquered, you lose. If, you know, you might have one of your people in trouble, you have to go rescue them. You have to beat a certain boss. You have to beat enemy reinforcements before they get to a certain place. You can't just run around hacking and slashing having a good time because you won't have a good time. <laughs> so yeah. it's it's really cool how it's not just brainless button mashing. It's There's a lot of strategizing to it, and I'm really, really getting into it. Yeah, it's fun. Uh, I picked it up when uh, I got my son's Wii and uh, played it for a while. He wasn't really interested in it, which I don't know why. I think hack and slash games are fun and you know would have been something he would have really liked to jump into. But I think... Anytime I play a game in front of him or before him, he gets a little intimidated, you know, and uh, just thinks it's going to be too hard. So hmm. I, I don't know. Kind of pushed him away from that, I guess, which I wish I wouldn't have done. So, but who knew? Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, the last and final game I'm going to talk about that I'm currently working on is Final Fantasy X, the HD remaster on the PlayStation Vita. Have you ever played this, Rich? No, I have not. Okay, so this game came highly recommended to me by Bill, Wild Bill, who went way back when, when I was on the Collector Cast for their PlayStation 2 episode. I believe this was his top game. I know it was at least in his top five, if not his number one, and it was just highly recommended. So I, I wanted to play something on the Vita, and I was kind of in the mood to play a Final Fantasy because... I've only played one and four, and I want to play more of them because it's a just a legendary series that spans all console generations. So, you know, I wanted to experience more. So I decided to play Final Fantasy X. It is a very strange game, and I don't love it, but I don't hate it. And I find myself wanting to play it like... <laughs> <laughs> like I want to finish it, but playing it sometimes isn't fun because there's like this frustrating thing it does where there's so many cutscenes. It's like Metal Gear Solid Four levels of cutscene to gameplay ratio being so high that it's like all, you sometimes you feel like all you're doing is watching cutscenes and you can't skip any of them, and they're all very badly acted, and the writing is. I said on Twitter, the cutscenes feel like a bad dream because the dialogue is just so <laughs> stilted and unreal and not like anybody would ever speak in real life that it's just, it feels like you're in a bad dream. And I don't mean a nightmare, a bad dream and a nightmare are two different things to me. And in, in this context, it's just like, oh, like just get on with it. These cutscenes are really God awful. And everybody knows the laughing scene, the ha 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 ha. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, with the main character, uh, Titus and Yuna, she's telling him to laugh. It's a very infamous cutscene in gaming yeah, history. I've seen it. Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to say that's not the half of it, man. Like there's so much stupidity in these cutscenes. That that ha 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 scene is just the tip of the iceberg. So 
I'm going to finish this game unless I hit some kind of crazy wall in it, which I've heard like there's a difficulty spike at the end. So of course my mentality, I'm just grinding like an idiot until I'm super overpowered for any area that I'm in. Like if I'm not one shotting every enemy in this area, I'm not leaving it. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) So I'm just going to take my time with it. As long as I'm, as long as I got my hands on my Vita, I'm, I'm a happy person. So I I don't mind taking my time with it. I'm using this old strategy guide that I have too, which is kind of cool. I have a Final Fantasy X strategy guide from the PS2 days. So I'm using that as a walkthrough and it's, it's a lot of fun. So that's it. That's all I'm playing. That's what I'm working on right now. Awesome, man. So this month we played Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice. And as usual, we'll start off with our question of the month. Now, Rich, you really came up with a banger this month because it's very provocative. And Mm -hmm. we discussed before we release this question, like, what are we going to do if Twitter becomes a flame war and all this other stuff? And as usual... Our fears were unfounded, and of course the community came through with some really thoughtful answers, and there were no, you know, no jabs thrown any in any way, of course. No political jabs, no um, funny answers on this one. Everybody took it really seriously, which 
with a few of these guys, I'm really surprised. So, yeah. yeah. Good job, guys. And nothing against funny answers. Uh, Ooh, we'll, no. we'll take answers of any kind, but to ask a question, which, which you'll hear in a second, has the potential to be political or controversial or whatever, we got nothing but love and it was awesome. So the question is, Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice is a game that thematically highlights mental illness. What other social issues would you like to see addressed in gaming and why? Okay, let's start with Duke Togo at CollectorCast. He says, poverty. Games are usually power trips, but let's see something besides a Robin Hood story. Good answer there. Yeah, great. I like it. That was a good start. That was the first response we got and got the wheels turning. Kelsey, at Kelsey Polnick, Crabmaster2000, he says, homelessness. It's been a local issue up here lately and would be great to see some positive new ideas or just more spotlight on it. So many misconceptions that I wish more people were aware of. Uh, this one speaks to my heart because there's a, a really bad homeless problem here in Austin. And yeah, you and I actually talked about that when I was on my visit. I remember that. Yeah, it's really heartbreaking because it's scary for the people involved. It's scary for people who aren't homeless because there's a crime rate associated with poverty and homelessness and then there's so many challenges with it and it's tough and i appreciate this answer and i would like to see it addressed in a video game that would be very impactful yeah you know we played beyond two souls and i know that that has a part about homelessness in it and i thought the game did a really good job with that yeah, actually, you're right. I, I appreciate you bringing that up. I, I remember that now, yeah. But I agree. I'd like to see something more focused. The full game may be focused on something like that. I think that's a that's a great concept, great idea. Yeah, yeah. All right, we got Adam Bickley at Bickman2K. He said, gun violence in America. It's extremely sad seeing headlines about how there was another active shooter. Mass shootings here are no longer rare. It's a part of life. I know it partially ties into mental health, but it has that additional level that can affect so many. Got another great answer. Uh, I'm not going to add anything to that. I remember someone created a game uh, with sort of the inverse where you act as the shooter several years ago. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. Wasn't it called The Hatred or something? And I don't yeah. remember the name of it. I just remember seeing it on the news, which, you know, sort of the total inverse of that, you know, game game that you really don't want to see, in my opinion. I yeah, no, no, no. I think that was like universally canned and the guy canceled it anyway. So, yeah, I I wonder, you know, with guns being such a ubiquitous gameplay mechanic shooting guns is something you do yeah. in, a, in a lot of games so to address that would be would be very interesting mm -hmm. uh, so we got kevin at buried on mars he said accessibility for the disabled interactive media has the potential for being the most effective method of conveying the struggle those with disabilities have to those who don't and he adds this might be the only time you get a serious answer from me well, we'll see if we ever play a Star Trek or a Seinfeld game, if that holds true. <laughs> Good point. Um, but yeah, that's another great answer. And uh, accessibility outside of gaming, like we saw that Microsoft put out that controller that I, I don't know too much mm -hmm. about it, but it was very, uh, a lot of people were celebrating the efforts that they were making there. But 
as Kevin notes, uh, you could go a lot further with it and it, it could be something within gaming. Uh, I know a lot of people have problems with colorblindness and other disabilities that can make it difficult to enjoy uh, this hobby that we love so much. So good answer there. I got one from Corey, who I was just texting to get an answer from <laughs> before we started. Corey said, large-scale conflicts slash wars. Plenty of games' themes are based around war, and I love games like Call of Duty, Battlefield, etc., but it would be nice to see a game that promotes how toxic war is and how it should always try to be avoided. I liked this answer a lot for two reasons. Number one, the warfare state is a political issue that I'm not afraid to talk about. It's my number one personal issue from a political standpoint. And luckily, since the George Bush years, I think the popular consensus has turned away from the warfare state and the, the empire that the United States has become. So it's not as unpopular of an opinion to hold as it was maybe 15, 20 years ago. But um, I really like this answer because I think it's the number one issue facing our civilization. And we do have a lot of video games, again, that promote warfare. We have one of the biggest games out right now is Modern Warfare. And I'm conflicted on this because I feel like if we're shooting each other in the virtual world, that's all for the better because nobody gets hurt. It's play acting, it's LARPing, it's a video game, it's not real. But it, I feel like it normalizes the very real sacrifice and pain and suffering that our troops and their families and the people of the countries that we send our troops into all have to suffer. And I don't know what else to say, except I'm strongly against any kind of aggressive wars or um, certainly what we have right now, which is an empire and it's bound to fall. There are very likely a lot of like PC strategy games that probably address this that I'm not familiar with. Um, but I know a game like Civilization doesn't really illustrate the cost of war. It's more like, oh, just go defeat another country, you know, and la-di-da, like, we'll just invade, and it's part of the game, it's fun, you know. But yeah, the warfare thing is a big personal one for me. So, Corey, that was a good answer. I hope I didn't, <laughs> I hope I didn't run away with it too far from what you were trying to say, but uh, I appreciate that. Didn't you and Steven host a game about war that didn't, like, glorify it? Didn't you guys play, like, Spec Ops The Line? I don't remember how that game was crafted, what the story was, but I know it was sort of a, a different type of game in regards to war. Yeah, again, that's a great call-out, Rich. That's a game that is kind of an anti-war war game, and I just reminded myself, in a way, there's a Super Bunny Hop video about anti-war war games, and he brings up the Metal Gear Solid franchise. There's a strong denuclearization theme throughout that entire franchise, so I definitely recommend checking out that video. But Spec Ops The Line, too, is more of a personal psychological uh, journey, almost like it's similar to Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice, where it's more these like personal atrocities that you're taking part in that you have to face. I think games like Spec Ops, that's like a drop in the ocean compared to how many Call of Duties and Battlefields Absolutely. and the like there yeah. are. So again, a good call out, and I wish there was more of that. You're absolutely right on the money there. Cool. 
So uh, I got an answer from my wife here. She said she'd like to see environmentalism and conservationism uh, tackled in gaming a little more clearly than it has been. And she brought up that in The Sims 4, there's an expansion called Island Living. And part of this expansion is actually cleaning up the island. But she said that all that kind of stuff was very surface level, like... It was kind of like clean up the beach and now the beach is clean and everything's fine kind of thing. And she said it really made her think that it would be something that you could do better in a game. Yeah, absolutely. So that's what I got from the community. And I'm happy to go into mine if you want me to keep talking. (laughs) Sure. Okay. So this is an idea I had a long time ago and I actually wanted to make this game, but... I quickly realized I don't know a lot about game development or programming or anything, so I never made it. But if anybody is a developer and wants to make this game with me, I'm all in. So I worked at a municipal animal pound for about eight years, and my wife worked there with me. We worked part-time. By law, the pound had to be open for three hours a day, seven days a week. So we worked there on Saturday and Sunday mornings from 8 to 11 or 8 to 12. It was the kind of job where you really experience the highest highs and the lowest lows. You have animals die, injured animals. It can really be a horror show and it can really take a toll on your mental health. I played a game called Papers, Please a while back while I was working at the pound. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with this game, but it's where you play as a a border crossing agent in like a Soviet style country. And you have to look at the people's documents and vet them and decide whether you want to let them cross the border. And I thought you could do something similar to that and have like an animal pound simulator where you would have animals, cats and dogs, and sometimes other. We had all kinds of animals come into this pound, ferrets, rabbits, a pig, um, all kinds of different stuff. So I think that would be an interesting gameplay element when you could start with cats and dogs and then one day you get a pig and you have to know what to do with it. And then you could have a single mom and her two kids just came in. What kind of animal are you going to recommend for them? Or an army guy just came in. What are you going to recommend for him? And these are all things that happened to me. An animal escaped. What are you going to do? Uh, Somebody wants to surrender an animal. What are you going to do? Somebody just ran over an animal. What are you going to do? There's so many scenarios and so many things that I lived through that I could put into a video game that would make... I think for a very compelling experience and I would love to see this made. Uh, So again, if anybody wants to work on this with me, one of the key things though, or just make it and Sean can sue the hell out of you either way. (laughs) One of the key things though, is that as a municipal pound, not a shelter, we were pound. We were a no kill pound. We were fortunate enough that we weren't one of those cities where, you know, an animal's euthanized after seven days or whatever. That that I wouldn't be able to do that job. So I think you would want to address both. Like you could have game modes. Are you a no kill shelter or are you a kill pound? You know, it's uh yeah. it's something that you would have to face if you were going to take that on as a game. And 
Yeah, I just have so many ideas, so many great things happened when I was working that job and so many horrible things happened when I worked that job. I think it would make for a really exciting and compelling game experience. Awesome. Well, I had a similar answer um, to what Kevin came up with. And uh, Kevin's answer, I don't know, was very specific in terms of handicap. He meant physically handicapped or the mentally handicapped. As I've maybe mentioned to you before, um, I have a neighbor who I basically call my fourth kid, 18-year-old kid with autism, just the sweetest kid you could ever meet. And, uh, you know, just having him in my life and being able to have my kids experience being around someone that's different than them, I think, has been just an incredible experience. And I think that that is the type of experience that everyone should have to go through. When I was younger, my dad played softball and we would travel all over the state and, you know, other states where he played in a, like a men's softball league. And, uh, one of the players on his team had a brother who was mentally handicapped and he helped the team out and, you know, everybody loved him. It was like a brother to everyone. And, uh, you know, just having those experiences growing up were just very valuable to me and made me the person that I am today. And I think a lot of people, when it comes to, you know, the mentally handicapped are afraid because it's an unknown. And so I think having some sort of game that could make people understand more how they shouldn't be standoffish and, you know, should be more accepting of uh, people with these types of disabilities would be wonderful. Cool. I like it. Do you have any ideas of how you would see that in gameplay <laughs> or you just, yeah, just I don't know. conceptual phase? Right. I mean, I guess with gaming, I feel like there aren't characters that are mentally handicapped. Do you know what I mean? I mean, we play a lot of games where everyone seems to be normal. Now, gaming has become more diverse with more female characters, more people of different races and things like that, but I don't think that we've really addressed people that are mentally handicapped. And I would just like to see more characters, at least, in that regard. I don't know how you would base an entire game around it at this point, but I definitely feel like something could be done with a strong character. So, yeah, that's just kind of my idea. Cool. I like it. Very good. So let's get into the discussion here about Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice. And I'm just going to say right at the gate here that Rich and I are not mental health care professionals, of course. Speak for yourself. <laughs> oh, Rich, you're a psychiatrist. I forgot. <laughs> I go to one and okay. <laughs> Well, despite that, we are not mental health experts or professionals, and the developers of the game were kind enough to put out a website, hellbladehelp.info, if you mm -hmm. want to further your research on the um, mental health aspects of this game, which we will touch on, but... Um, this game, playing this game and learning about its development and what they were aiming for was a learning experience for me, as I'm sure it was for you. And it was very eye-opening. Yeah. And, um... and I think that was the whole point. That was definitely the developer's goal with making this game. So mm -hmm. um, I just wanted to get that disclaimer out there. But let's get into 
the participants. Of course, Rich, you and I played this game. Mr. Stubbs, Dougley007, Pam, Link41, and Crabmaster. Shout out to Crabmaster. He wanted to, just couldn't get a copy of the game in time. So, Crabby, I hope you get your hands on this game and end up playing it eventually. Maybe turn off the podcast at this point and don't get spoiled on the game. Come back and listen to us later. So those were their participants. The game was developed by Ninja Theory. Now we are familiar with Ninja Theory because we played their game Enslaved Odyssey to the West. They've also developed a game called Heavenly Sword. That was their first like big uh, game back on the early PS3 days. And they also did the Devil May Cry reboot, remake, whatever you want to call it, called DMC. Uh, Devil May Cry fans hate that game, but I actually really love it because I'm more of a Ninja Theory fan than I am a Devil May Cry fan. So I really like all three of these games. I like all of their work. So Hellblade was very exciting to me to hear about and to finally play it. Yeah, I think when I brought this up, you and I were trying to figure out games for November, and we switched those games out several times, and I said, man, I've been hearing a lot about this Hellblade game. It seems to be you know, very controversial, and as far as people liking it or disliking it, you know, would you be interested in that? And you're like, absolutely, I want to play it sooner than later, you know? So uh, that's kind of how that happened as far as uh, setting up this playthrough. Yeah, you asked me at a good time because the game was on Game Pass. That was actually right mm-hmm. after I had subscribed to Game Pass, and I was like, oh, Hellblade, hell yes. Like, I've been wanting to play this game for a long time. Here it is, yeah. right in my lap now, and I'm going for it. So it was good that we had that conversation. The game launched in 2017 on the PS4 and PC and was released the next year on the Xbox One and then in 2019 on the Nintendo Switch. Uh, There's also a VR version, but that's for PC only, so I haven't had a chance to experience that yet. And I don't know what it is, like if it's in the first person or if it's uh, just playing the game in VR, like I'm not sure what it's like. (laughs) So the story, and you're going to help me out with this, Rich. Absolutely. There's a character named Senua who, (laughs) so I just wrote one sentence in the story blurb, and I said, (laughs) Senua endeavors to save Dillian's soul by venturing into Helheim. Right. So I wanted to kick it over to you because you're more familiar with the history here. This game takes place in the late 8th century, according That's according to your notes here. So you're much more learned on this topic. So can you give <laughs> us give us the background here, and then I'll go back into the actual like character actions in the story. Absolutely. So I think with this game, it's really important to talk about the historical significance to help you kind of understand what's going on in the game. You're correct, this took place in the late 8th century. At that time, the Roman Empire had expanded and come up into what is today the United Kingdom. And toward the mid-south portion of the United Kingdom, the Romans had built up a wall across Britain called Hadrian's Wall, and what this was, it was to keep invaders out. And those invaders were the Picts, or what most people call the Celts at that time. And so our heroine, Senua, is a member of the Picts. 
and Picts, the name comes from painted people in Latin. And so if you will notice as you're playing the game, Senua has lots of tattoos, faces typically always painted as she's going to war. And her character is that of a um, very talented warrior class. So during this time in the late 8th century, the Vikings were raiding and coming into Britain. And so around this time is when they were invading the lands of the Picts. And as we know, the Vikings were very destructive, rarely leaving anyone alive, looting, plundering. And in this case, we're talking about Delian, Senua's husband. He was murdered by the Vikings or as they're called in this story, the Northmen, of course, because they came from the northern regions. So that's sort of the historical significance and where this is set up. Senua has Dillian's head clamped to her belt and is taking it to Helheim to try to bring his soul back from Helheim. What's really interesting about this story is that Helheim is actually not the afterworld of the Picts, but the afterworld of the Norsemen. So she is going into their underworld to try to bring him back. And a lot of the enemies that she fights are a part of that Norse mythology culture. So, uh, yeah, uh, very interesting. The people that did this game really had a strong idea of what they wanted to focus on historically and create this character around. And so... While a lot of games we play don't have that element to it, I really dig the historical aspect of this game. That was very illuminating. I really appreciate you doing that. Sure, um, sure. So two things I wanted to mention. Does it say in the game that Dillian is actually married to Senua? Because I thought he was just a, like a generic love interest. And not to play it down, of course. You know, sure. But does it mention that they're married at any point? <sighs> I don't know if it specifically mentions it. I know that they're a couple, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't know if they're specifically married. I, for some reason, I thought that there was a hint of that, but could be completely wrong in that. But either way, their lives are intertwined and they are lovers. So, yes. you know, we can just kind of go with that. Sure. And the other thing is, Dillian, the way he is executed is a particularly mm. brutal method. Um, yeah. I think it's called a blood angel. Is that blood eagle? Blood eagle. That's it. Um, and that that is a Viking practice for sure. Yeah, it's brutal to even think of, but it's where the person is hoisted up and what dismembered basically, and yeah, flayed. You know, flayed spread open. out. Yeah, a particular scene from one of the Saw movies comes to mind, actually, when I think of that. So, yeah, that's great. Good job there with the history. So you're set off in the beginning of the game. You get in your canoe and you're going to venture into Helheim to rescue Dillian's soul. And as Rich mentioned, you're, you're carrying his head with you. Mm-hmm. And you encounter enemies that are part of the Viking mythology, as, as you mentioned. But now the thing that plays into this whole thing that wraps it all together is that Dillian's execution triggered a psychosis in Senua. And 
I want to make the point because the developers did very strongly in their documentaries that they did in the YouTube videos that psychosis and psychopathy are not the same thing. Again, this is one of the things that I either didn't know or never thought about, that these are two different things. Psychopathy entails a lack of empathy for other human beings where psychosis is not that. So... Dillian's execution triggers this in Senua, and she loses her grip on actual reality. So Mm -hmm. as you play the game, one of the big hooks of the game is that you're experiencing her reality and her experience of reality. And this is the reason why you're encouraged to put headphones on, because Mm -hmm. one of the symptoms of psychosis is voice hearing. And as you play the game, you will hear voices. And the, the voices can be intimidating, they can be insulting, they can also be very helpful and tell you what to do and be positive and motivational, which is all, according to the developers and according to the people who advised on the game, is all very realistic. Basically, from the get-go, Rich, I'm just going to say the story kind of meshes in with all of this, the trappings of the psychosis angle of playing as this main character. And I pretty much from the start, I was questioning what is real? Are these enemies even real? Mm-hmm. I mean, do we have really, an unreliable narrator? Yeah. Um, remind me when we get to the ending, some theories that I had about the ending before I hit it, because I was just thinking about things that could have pulled out of left field once you start dealing with an unreliable narrator. So as Senua, you have to go through this world fighting enemies and bosses and solving puzzles eventually you get to Helheim but as you go through you experience more cutscenes with backstory about how your mother Galena suffered the same mental psychosis as you are it's like this inherited thing and that your father Zimbel thought that she was maybe possessed by a demon he actually burned her at the stake which is another trauma that Senua had to go through that just compounds her mental state. Absolutely. And to tack on to that, at around that time, there was a plague and also the invasion of the Vikings, which because of the mental state of her mother also put a target on her as someone who is causing these things to happen. And at one point, she has to go out into the wilderness and kind of, I guess, sort of find herself or get away from uh, persecution. So the story is not so much a series of plot events that you can recount on a podcast as it is an experience and its background that you learn as you go through the experience. There's a boss battle at the end and kind of a resolution to everything. But one of the things that just kind of keeps driving you is the history that you were talking about, Rich. You have this character, Druth, who's um, kind of like a shaman who accompanies you. He gives you tidbits on the history of the Northmen, and you will be constantly hearing about the Northmen. And what's cool about this character is he was actually recorded in full motion video. He's not a render. He's real in the game. And it's kind of cool because it's an awesome juxtaposition because uh, Ninja Theory does such a great job with their character models that you throw a full motion video next to it and you almost can't tell the difference. Uh, Being a little hyperbolic there, but 
I mean, it's so close. Like it took me uh, a couple seconds to notice like, oh, that's that's full motion video. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's funny. The video that came along with the game, they show them actually in front of a green screen and their outfits that they're wearing, they look so ridiculous. I mean, beyond like something you would wear at Halloween, like something you would just throw together. But the way they do it and the way they incorporate it and, you know, kind of make it hazy and dreamlike, it looks like it fits. It's, It's beautiful. To me, something like that is much better than something that would be like CG, you know? Yeah, they made a lot of really good creative artistic choices in this game that really come together. The game visually, like, I wouldn't change a thing about it. Mm, No, it's stunning. Yeah. Yeah, so let's get into the psychosis aspect of the game and how it plays into the gameplay and how and what the developers were going for and how how they ended up with the development. So one of the things I use here, it's called binaural sound, and that's what I was um, talking about with the voices that you hear. Uh, where they actually like put like a filter on a m- omnidirectional microphone that's like shaped like two ears. So the sound actually filters into the microphone as it would be received by human ears. It is very effective. And I think one of the things as you're playing the game and, and hearing these voices, it's funny, very early in the game, I found myself saying, this is friggin' annoying, man. I wish these voices would stop. <laughs> and it's like, oh man, they, they got me. Like that's, that's exactly <laughs> what they wanted me to feel. And I totally right. felt it. It's a very effective part of the game. Yeah. And I think we should mention that the developers of this game actually 
had people who not only specialized in these mental illnesses, but actually people with these mental illnesses who would give them advice on what to do and even watch some of their footage to see, are they hitting the mark with what they're trying to accomplish here? (laughs) It's, It's incredible. Yeah, I think the developers really did a good job doing all this legwork, which it would have to be with such a sensitive topic, you know, and it's good on them that they put out this documentary with the game. They really sell you on how hard they worked to get this right, which I appreciate. Yeah, absolutely. Whether it's 100% perfect or not is debatable, but at least they made that effort. And if we made any of these hypothetical games that we were talking about in the question of the month, I would hope that the developers take that kind of tender, loving care to do it right. So with that in mind, and knowing that Senua's grip on reality is kind of on shaky ground, I think we can move into the gameplay a little bit. I'm getting so annoyed, Rich. It's one of my things now that is... It's really starting to get me when I start hearing the word walking simulator like used for anything. It's almost like the way Hidden Gem used to piss me off. Like I kind of don't care about that anymore. But like now with games like Death Stranding or anything that's not like crazy bombastic shooting it just gets called a walking simulator and it's such a derisive term and I, when i was doing my research for this episode and on this game i heard it referred to as a walking simulator and it's like what kind of game do you want you know like what kind of game does it take to not be called a walking simulator i i don't know sorry I'm, that's like just a little soapbox moment like i couldn't believe when i heard that yeah, I agree. That's a term that's being thrown around these days way too loosely. Yeah. And I can agree that it takes a while in this game to get into the action of it. But that's just part of the game. I mean, that's part of the buildup, and it's something that really didn't bother me about the game. But I could see how that would bother someone else who's more into the action-type games. I mean, this is definitely a different type of game, and you just have to take it how it is, you know? Yes. So the game is very linear, but I will say one of the big parts of the game, as you just mentioned, is the walking and exploring is not the right word because there's not areas to explore. It's very linear. There are some more open areas where you do the puzzles, which I'll talk about in a second. Mm -hmm. But yes, the game is, is linear. There is combat in the game. It is compartmentalized in a sense that there are combat sections of the game. You draw your sword automatically when it's fighting time. Yeah. And when it's not fighting time, you can't swing your sword around. It's that kind of situation. I'm just going to come out and say it. I love the combat. A lot of people hate it, but I loved it. One of the things I loved about it is that your character model and the enemy's character model take up a full third of the screen. Like the entire middle of the screen is taken up by you and your enemy and most of the time your enemy is bigger than you and very imposing and intimidating and i actually love this visual aspect of the game rather than just being like a little like a little god of war guy running around a screen with a ton of enemies there's this like real intimacy it's it's almost like punch out like it's just a one-on-one and the fights are not one-on-one but they feel that way because you're staring down your one enemy at the moment So there's a parry and dodge system. Mm -hmm. 
light attack, a heavy attack, and a kick. The kick is not effective for attacking. It's more of a break guard type of move, and it's effective for enemies who have shields. Yeah, very effective. Once you learn that technique, it's yeah. uh, pretty easy to take <laughs> out the guys with shields. Yeah, I love it. So the combat is very timing-based, and if you time a block perfectly, it leaves your enemy wide open for a few seconds. It kind of freezes time, and you can kind of hack away at them for a couple seconds. And the other aspect of the combat that I loved is when there's more than one enemy in the area, there will be enemies who sneak up behind you, and the voices in your head actually tell you, turn around, look behind you. He's right behind you. Right. (laughs) This is really awesome that they did this, and they did it right, that the timing of those things is very reflexive and reactionary in just the right ways. Like if you're about to block one dude, you block him, and then it says, look behind you, you turn around perfectly, you block that guy, you strike that guy. Like it was very fluid for me. I know a lot of people don't agree and didn't have the same experience, but I thought the combat was the best part of the game as far as gameplay mechanics. Yeah, I love the combat. I thought it was very fluid. And also, it looks so good, too, you know? I mean, these, like, moves that you would do, I mean, it's brutal. But at the same time, it's very gorgeous, (laughs) you know? I think one of the things I really did like also is having multiple enemies to fight at one time and having to be aware of your surroundings. It's tough at times because the combat area is very limited. So you have to move left and right a lot of times to make sure that enemies don't get to your backside so that you don't get hit. You know what I'm saying? So it's a very like spatial manipulative game, much like Parasite Eve, you know, how you had to move into certain areas. So I I think there's a very cool spatial aspect to the game, though toward the end it can get intense, (laughs) you know, tough to dodge. But yeah, I really like the combat in this game, and I think it's one of the stronger points, like you said. Yeah, I want to tack on, like you were saying, how intense the battles feel and how beautiful they look. I would also say the sound is amazing, the clanking of the swords together. The stabbing sound is very visceral and sounds real. Not that I've heard many people get stabbed in real life, thank God, but (laughs) you know, it sounds realistic to me. And uh, her sword just seems huge, like... You know, you're fighting these scary, intimidating, big, presumably male enemies, and you're this young woman wielding this massive sword, and you really feel that with the character animations and the way the character model moves, and uh, I really like that aspect of it. Like, she's punching upward, you know what I mean, to (laughs) to turn a phrase. She's vicious, too. I mean, um, you know, we find out in the story that her um, lover, Dillian, was a great fighter. And so she's learned Mm -hmm. a lot of this technique from him because I don't know at the time if women were allowed in this particular society to be warriors. But it's really awesome finding these huge enemies being this petite woman (laughs) compared to what you're going up against. Yeah, Yeah, you definitely feel it. So one other mechanic in the combat is you have this focus. And in addition to Dillian's head on your belt, (laughs) you have a mirror on your belt, which kind of fills up as you land strikes. And once it fills up, and I should mention, there's no HUD in this game. One of the smarter choices they made as far as the visual design of the game is there's no HUD. So you actually can see the mirror on her hip 
and it, it fills up with this blue insignia as you do damage. And once it fills up, you can do this focus time, which is exactly what it sounds like. It kind of slows down time. It makes you a little bit quicker, a little bit more powerful. And you get, you know, whatever it is, 10, 15 seconds to kind of unload on an enemy that's given you grief. And it's another one of the things that kind of plays into um, the voices in your head because I don't know if this happened to you, Rich, but how many times I forgot to use the focus time and the voices are telling you, focus, focus, focus. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I'm focusing. Like I'm trying to beat this guy. And, they're, and then I'm like, oh no, the focus time thing. Okay, okay. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's cool uh, in like most games enemies there's some that are pretty easy to beat that will swing you do one dodge or like a roll to the side and then you can just hit them and take them out but there's others that are a lot more complicated and have a lot more move set so it's good to save that focus time for those types of enemies because you can really take them down with one swing a lot of times yeah definitely now speaking of more complicated enemies let's talk about the boss battles a little bit rich i gotta confess i played this game back in October and I remember it and I remember the boss battles, but you have their names here and you're going to have to help me out with maybe a little bit of a description of what they do. Cause I don't know them by name. Sure. I'll go through them real quick. Cert was the fire guy that had the large sword. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Val Raven was the um, half human, half Raven boss, which uh, was actually the first fight I got to. I think we should mention that at the beginning, you do get a branching path to where you can go to either side. But I actually fought Val Raven first, who I thought was a much more complicated fight than the Cert fight. You also fight Garm, also known as Fenrir, which is the um, dog-like animal, the guardian to the entrance to Helheim. And then, of course, there is the final battle as well, which we will get into later. So, again, I'll just come out and say it. As much as I love the combat, I like the boss battles a lot as well. Um, yeah. There were some brief moments of frustration. And, and I should mention, I played on easy. There are difficulty settings for this game. And it does have an automatic difficulty, which I wish I had researched this before I played the game back in October. I thought automatic would be like a story mode, like you don't even have to do the combat kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But automatic means it's like a sliding difficulty based on how good you are at it. Oh, Resident wow. Evil 4 had something like this where if you're really kicking ass in the game, it's going to get harder. And if you're really having a hard time, it's going to get a little bit easier without you seeing that. You know, you'll just feel it yeah. as you play the game. That's cool. So I didn't know that. So I actually just played the game on easy. But having said that, the boss battles were not like a piece of cake. I still had to strategize and think about what I was doing and do them the right way. The cert one was crazy you know like they really did a great job with the like elements of fire and water and darkness and all the forces of nature that are just intimidating and scary on a primal level you know like Mm -hmm. they really portrayed that well in this game and that cert battle uh with the fire i thought was was very memorable yeah that's a very cool battle if i had to pick one i would probably pick the valraven fight that was a favorite of mine Cert was more of up close, whereas the Valraven fight, a lot of times you had to um, do a lot of dodging. He would come at you from a distance uh, in a rush. Uh, so I thought that one was a lot of fun because it took me a little while to learn the patterns and things of that nature. So 
I enjoyed that. The Fenrir fight. It was good. There's a part of that fight toward the end, and you may remember this, where it's just darkness and you can't really yeah. see anything. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. I love that part. Cause you have oh, to really? It sound. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. It was a little aggravating to me and probably just got lucky winning that fight. No, I liked it. I thought because, again, this game is like... It's not a horror game, but the one word that keeps coming to my mind is scary. And again, I think that's what the developers are going for. Everything oh, is intimidating and scary. And that that Fenrir fight that you're like, okay, I got this beast thing. It's, uh, you know, I've fought uh, things like this in video games many times before. And then they, they literally turn the lights out on you and you have to fight them in the dark based on audio cues only, which is, it was awesome. I thought yeah. it was really cool. Even more of a reason to wear headphones, which I think yeah. you might have said the developers definitely suggest at the beginning of the game. Yes. Um, and I don't think there's any other way you should play this game. Agreed. Uh, so let's get into the other major component of the gameplay, which is the puzzles. Now, the puzzles are based on these like glyphs that you see. They're mostly locked doors. So you will get to a door... And you'll see symbols on it uh, most of the time. Well, I don't I don't remember. There's like one or two or three symbols. And you get this symbols almost as like a watermark on your screen. And you can pull one of the triggers to kind of embolden them on your screen so you can remember what they look like. And then you run around whatever area you're in trying to find an instance of this symbol in nature. So it's like a visual puzzle. Like, let's say the symbol looks like a V, so you have to find two pieces of wood that, if you stand in the right way, are jutting out in a way that looks like a V. And you overlap the watermark of the symbol over that V made out of wood, and it could, you know you get a, a cue that you did it right, and your controller vibrates or whatever it is, and you know you got it. And then it, it will illuminate on the door as if you know it's ready to go, like that glyph is solved. There's also a portion of the game where you have to stand at a certain place to focus and put things like bridges back together, which is an interesting aspect of the game. Yeah, that was used a lot less oh, frequently. There was only yes. like two or three of those, which I would have liked to have seen more. But yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I almost forgot about that. But I'm going to say as much as I loved the combat, I wasn't a huge fan of the glyph puzzles. And it was kind of one of those things where... It reminded me of when we played Limbo and Inside, where it was like I could mostly get through them and I was not really having a hard time for the most part. But then there were these ones that it's like I would try for like 20 minutes thinking like, I know this is the damn tree trunk that matches this thing. And yeah. it's like I'm looking at it, looking at it, walking to a different angle, trying it again. And I'll finally just give up and look at a walkthrough YouTube video or something and the person who did it is standing like two steps away from where I was standing. And it's like, gosh, dang it. Like I was, I was there, I was doing the right thing, but it's, it can be like kind of unforgiving sometimes. Yeah. And I'll just mention this. There's something in the game. It's this mechanic where you're getting close to a rune, almost like little lightning bugs of that rune will be flashing up in the air around the area where that rune is located. Yeah. So that's kind of a neat addition to the game, and I think something that the developers did that made it 
a little easier because you would at least know what area it was in. I'll say that I never had to look at a guide. I made it through without, but I'm with you. There were times when there was like 20 minutes where I couldn't find something. It is a little frustrating when you can't get through those puzzles as fast as you would like to. And the puzzles in this game by far outweigh the combat. So for someone who's not really into puzzles or don't like games with puzzles, I could see it being a little frustrating. Yeah, and I want to mention the glyphs that you see that you describe as fireflies, which I think is a very apt uh, analogy. Those were, again, a contextualization of a symptom of psychosis, which is seeing things that aren't there. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, as the developers mentioned in their uh, documentary, that was part and parcel with the the themes of the game. And they were helpful, I'll tell you that, when you're yeah. at least starting a puzzle and you're running around like, okay, where's this one? Okay, it's in, I'm getting warmer, you know? It's, it's like that kind of feeling. Actually, when it started, I was like, oh, cool, it's this kind of puzzle. Like, I could do this. And then mm-hmm. really early on, I was like, I do not like this. I'm not enjoying it that much. Yeah, I think that uh, maybe varying it up would have been a good idea. Maybe some different types of puzzles. I mean, I, I definitely understand, like you said, what they were trying to go for. People with schizophrenia, you know, certain types of it will actually see certain shapes in everyday objects, you know, and they'll yeah. keep repeatedly seeing those things. And that was what they were going for. They allow you to understand that. But I think that it would have been nice for them to mix it up a little bit because it did get quite redundant at times. Yeah. So do you want to talk about the permadeath bluff? (laughs) (laughs) So let me ask you this. Did you know about it before you went into playing the game? Did I know that it was a bluff or did I know about the permadeath aspect? Did you know at all? Like, did you know that anything about it? (laughs) Well, it's funny. Um, I didn't know about it when we picked the game, but then I saw something online as I was researching this game a little bit about the permadeath, and I was like, oh, God. Oh, okay. So you heard that there was permadeath and didn't know that it was a bluff when you started. I I didn't research it that much. Oh, interesting. Okay. And so it probably made me adjust my difficulty setting because I did want to get through the game. Uh Uh-huh. And that was probably a lot of the reason I did that. But as you mentioned, it is a bluff. Yeah. They call it the rot. And the more times you die, the rot moves up your arm. And what's supposed to happen is that when it gets to your brain, you're supposed to lose all your save files and have to restart the game over again. Which is like a real kick in the teeth because you don't learn that until I would say like 45 minutes to an hour into the game. Right. right. <laughs> and you're like, what? You know. So the developers have been criticized for this a lot. It is a bluff. Yeah. You can keep going in the game. And what the developers have said is that the reason they did this was to create anxiety in the player mm-hmm. as again, what they're trying to convey with this type of psychosis and, um, you know, effective. <laughs> I mean, I'm not the kind of person that's like, Oh, you fooled me. I'm angry. You know, that, no, that sort of person all. when I'm a gamer, I understand what they were doing and it's quite clever in my opinion. Yeah. Well, I mean, I like what they did with that. And I think the rot being an obvious uh, symbolism for the psychosis to rope the player in that way, uh, was really clever 
Uh, some might say that it would have been even more clever if they went ahead with that permadeath aspect, but then you would cut out a huge portion of the audience and you would get yeah. more like hardcore players who wanted to, you know, no death run the whole game or whatever. Which you get those Dark Souls people. Yeah, that don't like. That's right. <laughs> Um, so I got to tell you, it's funny, my reaction to this, because I didn't know about this whatsoever. I didn't know it was a thing. I didn't know it was fake. And when it came up on the screen, I said, oh, that's nice. I guess I'm watching the ending of this game on YouTube because I'm not, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to get anxious over this. I'm going to play the game as I normally would. And that's going to suck when I can't finish this game. That, that was exactly what I thought. So I bought it and it took me a while to realize like, hey, I just died in that encounter a bunch of times and the stuff on my arm didn't really move at all. You know, once I started kind of keying into that, because of course at the first I was like, oh, is it going up my wrist now? Like, is it on my forearm now? Shit. Like, I'm, I'm in trouble. Like, <laughs> so again, mission accomplished. Like all these little tricks that the developers use to kind of rope me in, you know, so far all of the ones we mentioned actually worked on me. So I thought that aspect of it was cool. Yeah. So is there anything else in gameplay that you want to talk about before we move on? No, I don't think so. I think we've covered it. Cool. So let's get into the graphics of the game, the visuals, the environments, um, and the character models and facial animations and all that stuff. So one of the things that you wanted to highlight was the terrain and environments. And I totally agree with you because there's a level of lush detail in these environments mm -hmm. that is really beautiful. And it, for a smaller game, it's really cool that they were able to take the time and model every blade of grass or whatever and there is a photo mode in the game where you can kind of move the camera around and it's it's really well done and i i played the game on an xbox one s and which is no powerhouse of a console let alone some kind of powerful pc and it looked beautiful to me it looked absolutely amazing and i have no complaints about the environmental graphics so you brought it up rich what caught your eye about that Graphically, you know, you've got not only the forest and the seaside, uh, which is just completely beautiful and uh, so well done, but you also have these instances around and in Helheim that are fantastic. I think it's like the River of Blood that has all the uh, bodies and the hands that come yeah, out. The hands are oh, creepy. man, it's yeah. the stuff of nightmares and it's yep. really, really well done. Just just beautiful, extraordinary. I actually took some screenshots, PS4 share, and put them on my Twitter account. If uh, any of you want to check out some of those screenshots. The terrain was a little problematic for me. Now, we mentioned before that the game is linear, and I don't mind that so much. There were parts where you couldn't go out to see very far. Uh, you know, it would block you off. And that's fine. I have no problem with that. But... There are a lot of instances where there was like terrain, like rocks and things like that, that were small enough to where you should be able to traverse over them. This game has no jump mechanic. I think we should mention that. Yeah. I don't know. I, I felt like it seemed a bit off and abnormal that you couldn't walk up these smaller rocks. It made me feel like I didn't have control of my character and I was just being guided somewhere. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, this is uh, one of the age-old design challenges of video games is invisible walls and those 
waist high barriers. These would be even like knee high things, yeah. like, you know, rocks, <laughs> and you couldn't climb over them. And I'm like, this just breaks up the realism of the game for me. Um, so that's my one knock on it. But again, the game is incredibly beautiful. That's really the only thing about the environments or the graphics that, you know, I can really knock on it other than some screen tearing every once in a while that was fairly common on my PS4. I don't know how it played out for you. Yeah, thank God I didn't experience screen tearing because screen tearing drives me absolutely nuts. It's Mm -hmm. one of those things like people talk about frame rate like it's important and it is to some people and I get that. I don't care about frame rate as much as I do something like screen tearing that just messes up the game visually, uh, especially a game as beautiful as this. Takes you out of focus. Yeah. Uh, The the immersion factor kind of breaks up for you. And uh, I I noticed it a lot when I was doing, um, there was this one seaside cave that you go in where you have to go in the right rooms or they keep repeating. You know what I mean? It's like the right sequence. And when you get to the doorway, the screen would just jump. You could just see it and feel it. And uh, I noticed it there. And then just in a few other instances in the game. I mean, it wasn't make or break for me, but it's just something I noticed that, you know, I definitely wanted to point out. Cool. I want to talk about the character models. And in particular, I want to talk about Senua's character model. So the story goes that in the development of this game that Melina Jorgens is a video producer at Ninja Theory, and they had been asking her to just be a stand-in to test the motion capture rig and, you know, do some do some tests on that. And they came to realize that she would be really good for the part <laughs> of Senua. That's awesome. And it's kind of funny because... it's one of those things where, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And I, as the beholder of Melina Jorgens, I think she's a astonishingly beautiful woman. Absolutely. She's just gorgeous. And I have this kind of, (laughs) I have this kind of funny thought in my head that the story of her being like, Oh, let's use Molina to test the motion capture rig again. And it's like, you know what I mean? Like, imagine all these guys like, let's get Molina, let's get Molina. It's just, <laughs> that's my uh, canon, my head canon, as they say. Probably saved a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, right. Let's just take uh, this girl from the office and have her do it. But to the point, she did a fantastic job. And Absolutely. The painted face aspect of it she has these beautiful eyes in the game at least a character model does she does in real life too but the character model of the game has these striking eyes that are looking at you a lot because of the camera work and the cutscenes, and the contrast of her eyes and the blue face paint that goes across her eyes is just very striking to repeat myself but what a beautiful woman and what a great choice to just use her for the main character. And in addition to the documentary on the game disc, there's also a series of developer diaries on YouTube. And there's some really cool things where she had to go and demonstrate the motion capture live to an audience. And she was just talking about how she's really nervous about it. And she has no acting experience, believe it or not. And she's it's hard to actually, believe. <laughs> yeah. She was actually saying like, It was something she wasn't even interested in doing, but they just convinced her to do it. And 
we can all be glad that they did because she did a fantastic job. Yeah, and I just want to mention to add on to that, she was nominated for many, many awards and yeah. won several of yes. them for her portrayal. So somebody who's just an office worker at Ninja Theory, you know, and all these actors and everything that are hired for all these other games, that's pretty impressive. So, yeah, uh, you know, absolutely. kudos to her for that. So I brought all this up because of the graphics, but that was a good place to kind of fit all that in. But I wanted to highlight what a good job Ninja Theory always does incredible character models and facial animations. And they really did a great job with this one. You really feel like you're with Senua, that you are on this journey with her, that she's with you. And then using the use of uh, full motion video for Druth, as we talked about earlier, really meshes well as having this like kind of companion character with you throughout the game even if it's just like a vision the use of that full motion video there was kind of awesome and uh the graphics of this game are just absolutely top notch the detail on the character models the clothing again the intimidating imposing nature of the enemies the scariness of everything as i talked about the fire and the, the elements of nature that are confronting you, they wouldn't be as intimidating if the presentation wasn't good. They just nailed it. With that, we can move into the sound. We talked a lot about the whispering voices and the voices Mm -hmm. that you hear through the headphones, the use of binaural 3D sound. The music to me was more of that like movie music that was just fitting very good. Rich, I don't know if you have anything to add as far as the composition of the music, but... No, just fitting and epic. Yeah, I didn't find anything like super noteworthy about it. It's just... Good, epic, adventure-type orchestral movie music. So it was good. Nothing to write home about, nothing super special. So this is a major aspect of the voice acting. It was Druth telling you the story of the North, <laughs> the Northmen, the Northmen, um, right. uh, where, where you find these. The one collectible in the game, we should say, is these little, they look like tombstones, but they have this dial on them that has like, a million little things that your own mental um, capacities will struggle with not having every single one turn from white to red as you collect them. 
Um, <laughs> yeah. Damn it. It's the only thing that kept me from 100%ing this game. Yeah, and you get a little bit of a bonus in the ending if you 100% it. Did you know that? No, I did not. Yeah, just go go on YouTube. I would argue that it's not like super significant, like maybe not worth going to extremes to find every single one. But Rich, I got to say, as much as I love the guy who played Druth and his voice acting, I did kind of tune him out after a while. And really? Yeah, yeah, which sucks because he's telling you a story and he's telling you his story about he was imprisoned by the Vikings and uh, what he had to do. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm just an idiot when it comes to audio collectibles. Like, I never click with them. I had the same kind of thing with Bioshock and other games that had them. So, I got to say, though, man, this game was a little special. And I don't know if you picked up on this or not. But kind of giving that concept of playing this game and wondering, okay, is she really going into Helheim? Or is this something that's just a figment of her imagination? A lot of times you would listen to these stories of Norse mythology, and it would really parallel with what you were doing in the game. I don't know if you picked up on that or not. You know, like with the sword, Grammar. They were telling that story, you know, about how the sword was broken apart and everything during that time where you had to go through those big runestones to sort of piece your life back together. There weren't any combat scenes in there, but there were trials that you had to go through. And then after you went through those trials, you could pull the sword out of the tree, which was a big part of that same mythology that was going on, and I can't remember the focus of that mythological story, but you sort of paralleled along that. And that happened in about every chapter throughout the game. I thought it was really, really well done. Uh, So, you know, your character's kind of becoming this sort of fragmented piece of the actual Norse mythology. It was pretty cool. That's good, and that's awesome that you got something out of it and can talk about it, (laughs) whereas I kind of didn't. But... I thought the voice acting was great, and one particular yeah, yeah. voice that was good was, um, I guess it was Zimbel. Was that who had the really deep, evil-sounding, gravelly, groggy yeah, the voice? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was on a different level, man. That was awesome. And I'm not sure how much of that was voice acting and how much of it was audio effects, recording effects, uh-huh. but it was uh, chilling, you know? <laughs> I don't know if you know this or not, or you picked up on it in the documentary, but the same person that played Druth played Zimbo. So it's the same guy, (laughs) the same voice. So there had to be some sort of voice acting behind it because, you know, it definitely felt like two separate characters. You know, he actually played both people too, same face and everything. Very interesting. Wow. That was really good. And uh, I think even with uh, Melina Jorgen's, her acting, her emoting was good. Her eyes are piercing and whatever, but also her voice. Like, yeah, she has to say a lot of things and appear terrified or exhausted or, you know, the part where she sutures the wound on her face with her sword is very... Yeah, <laughs> cauterizes it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, she has to go through a lot of emotions and a lot of trials and tribulations. So, again, hats off to her as far as the acting and the, her voice. I was particularly impressed with uh, the uh, several times in the game where she sort of breaks that fourth wall and, like, comes to the front of the screen and is, like, 
talking almost directly to you. Yeah. Ah, uh, man, that's uh, <laughs> that's some that's some <laughs> strong stuff. It's a little creepy, but you know, again, it just it just really fits in well with what these guys are trying to do with this game. It's really great. Yeah. So there is a final boss battle, so to speak, but it's <laughs> it's one of those final boss battles where it's keep fighting enemies until you can't fight enemies no more, and then um, the ending kicks in. Yeah, you're supposed to fail. It's yeah. one of those types of endings, which I can see people getting frustrated with. <laughs> yeah, there is kind of, um, well, there's this being that is like, what is it? The personification of the darkness or it's Hella actually. Yeah. Who's the ruler of the underworld. Okay. So you don't actually fight Hella, but Hella, it seems that Hella is dictating what's happening to you. And you do climb these flights of stairs that are being formed in front of you as you go up them. And it is again, as everything in this game is visually striking, but Again, the final battle is just a survival, an anti-survival, I should say, <laughs> wave yeah, yeah. of enemies. And uh, then your ending kicks in. Now, the ending is one of the more controversial parts of the game because it seems that the end state of the game, the end game itself, is that Senua just kind of beats her mental psychosis and goes on with her life. Mm -hmm. She finds herself at the top of a mountain or a tower and just kind of drops Dillian's skull off of it. And I'm way oversimplifying here, but the criticism of the game is that, like, oh, she just does that and lets go of her demons and all is right with the world. Again, I played this game two months ago, Rich, so maybe you could elaborate on the ending a little bit more, being, sure. being fresher on it, because I know I'm not doing it justice. Well, in the end, you're supposed to be defeated. You're on the ground, and you're really beat up and bruised up, and Helena basically finishes you off. Helena grabs the head, walks over to the edge, and drops it, and you realize as the camera pans up, that Helena was actually you. And this was your way of sort of exercising these demons mm -hmm. um, and putting this, what's called the darkness behind you. So it's a very, I would say a, a bit of an ambiguous ending, but you know, one that, that I really like, you and I are both the kind of people that really don't like clean endings, you know, uh, yeah. as I tell my kids, uh, the world isn't always butterflies, rainbows, and unicorn farts, right? right. I mean, <laughs> you know, there there's a dark side to everything. And, you know, I think with a game as dark as this one is, that's sort of the best ending you can get out of a game. Um, you know, someone overcoming all of these trials and everything they've been through in their life. And this is someone who struggled through depression and issues of abuse her entire life to put her in the state that she's in. And uh, I think it's pretty uplifting. I liked it. And I know some people don't. You know, somebody want everything tied up in a pretty pink bow. But uh, for me, it was good enough and I actually enjoyed it. Cool. I like those thoughts. And I think if you view it through the lens of addressing personal trauma and facing it head on that that can resolve you know mental health issues that's one of the ways you do it now i don't know sure. how that works you know of course neither of us suffers from psychosis but i'll speak for myself i know i've experienced 
trauma in my life, both as a child and as an adult. And I know that facing it head on and doing whatever you need to do, whether it's crying it out, going to counseling, talking to people, whatever, is the best way to alleviate what that does to you and the negative effects it brings to your life. So if the ending symbolizes that, then I'm okay with that. I think people more just kind of criticized it as a a happy ending in a place where maybe there shouldn't be one so easily. I don't know. Yeah. You know, just to kind of uh, bounce off what you said, I mean, I don't want to share everything, but, you know, I've had some mental health issues in the last few years, you know, that I've had to deal with things that have been there my entire life that really didn't know existed. And, uh, yeah, for me, the ending is very impactful and maybe that's why. I don't have anything to the effect that Senua does in this game, but um, on a level of uh, mental health, I think that growing up, and especially in the South, as a male especially, it's always looked at as sort of a weakness. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. As far as getting treatment or getting help, and that people who have these mental problems are just people who are constitutionally weak, and uh, that's not the truth at all. We all have things that we need help with, and uh, uh, it's been an eye-opening experience for me in the last few years. And uh, for me, this game, in that regard, is very special. So, yeah, I mean, maybe I have a different take on it because of my situation, but um, that's just the way I look at it. No, that's good. All right, so I do want to get into our final thoughts which a lot of them are roped into what we just said, but that's, <laughs> I still have more to say. Um, I do have a few like little odds and ends that I noticed in my research that I didn't have anywhere to put. So I'm going to give you just kind of a mixed bag of weird topics right now. And we'll just go over those real quickly. As I was watching and reading reviews of this game, it got a lot of comparisons or confusion with Horizon Zero Dawn because they both came out around the same time which I thought was kind of weird, and I don't remember that happening, but it's one of those things that just kind of sucks because the video game industry is so fleeting and short-sighted. I haven't played Horizon, but from what I've heard, it's a very good game, and like, of course, this game is a very good game, and it's like they came out kind of near each other, and the main characters look a little similar, so they just get conflated with each other, which is just sad to me. It's just like, just a weird, like, bad timing thing. Um, the other thing I want to mention is the Jim Sterling incident. Do you know about what happened there? I don't think so, no. So Jim Sterling is a personality who he's in video game criticism and has a podcast and a YouTube channel. And he's funny and flamboyant and he plays a character who's very just boisterous. And he reviewed Hellblade and he hit a game stopping bug in the game when he was doing the torch section he actually went through one of the gates without the torch the game auto saved and he couldn't get back to get the torch lit and he couldn't progress in the game i had one of those issues too yeah in the game. yeah start over well what he did he he rated the game a one out of ten because of this And this became very controversial because defenders of the game are saying like, hey, it's not a one out of 10 game. It's a really good game. And it's an unfortunate thing that you ran into this bug. Like you should have reached out to the developers. You should have done this, shouldn't have done that. I think it's worth bringing up because he did actually follow it up with another video after that 
where he kind of explained himself a little bit more. And to his credit, he said like he didn't know if he had done the right thing kind of thing. And also it's interesting because the developers said that it helped them because it was a situation of there's no such thing as bad press kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So they said the publicity from that and the backlash to it, people coming to defend the game actually helped them in the long run. So I thought that was very interesting. And the last thing, <laughs> the last little tidbit that I wrote down was that whether you pronounce the game Senua or Senua, that both of those pronunciations are used in the game. So oh, I don't yeah. know if it's a dialectic thing, like between whether it's a Viking or a, one of the Celts saying it, like whether the, how it's pronounced. However... This is just something I picked up on. I never heard anybody complain about it. It's not something that's like an issue with the game. It's just I think about those things a lot, like how words are pronounced. And I found it kind of interesting that sometimes they say Senua and sometimes they say Senua. So Yeah, I think I got my pronunciation from uh, Delian. Mm. He, he would pronounce it Senua. Yeah, I think that's smoother. I, I kind of like that. So Yeah. Anyway, that's it. All right. So, <laughs> um, final thoughts. I'll go first. Does that sound good? Sure. All right. Yeah. So I love Ninja Theory. They're one of my favorite developers. I really like all their games and I was excited to play this game when it came out and I just didn't like get around to it until now because of the whole game pass thing and talking to you rich about, Hey, like now's the time to play this game. And Despite the puzzles, it was a really great experience. It wasn't as smooth as playing through like Enslaved, but even with Enslaved, there were parts that I didn't love. Like I didn't like some of the traversal and climbing stuff in Enslaved so much. DMC had these weird like combo things. Some of them I didn't like. So anyway, it's not like every Ninja Theory game is perfect start to finish and there's nothing I don't like in any of them, you know? And this one, I just didn't care for the puzzles. I thought it was a great idea that was overused and they didn't do enough of the ones with the, like you were saying, where the image is kind of just shattered and you have to look at it the right way to look right. I wonder if those sections were more difficult to develop and that's why they didn't do them as much. But that's just total wild guess on my part. I really liked uh, Melina Jurgens as the actress she is so beautiful that it was easy to bond with her throughout this game throughout this journey and just want her to succeed and to feel fear when she was in a scary situation and to share the danger with her and I felt this game on an emotional level and I highly recommend it it's one of those games where the gameplay can really turn people off. Like a lot of people, like I said, hate the combat. A lot of people love the puzzles. So it's one of those things where the gameplay consists of these two main things, combat and puzzles. If you like them both, you're all set, but you might not like one of them or you might not like both of them. But I think um, if you don't like the combat, turn it to easy. If you don't like the puzzles, look up a YouTube video because it's worth getting through those things to experience the entire game and get through it. Yeah. Uh, my final thoughts on this game, as I mentioned, there was a point in this game, probably about three hours in where I encountered a bug 
and um, I had gone back too far at one point, and I had lost my ability to see runes, which I needed to be able to do to get through a door, and the game auto-saved, and, uh, you know, I reset, cut the game off and everything, and nothing worked, so I had to start over. To get back to where I was, where it had taken me hours the first time, it took me probably 30 minutes. And so it wasn't that bad. I wasn't deep into the game, though I could see how someone would get really frustrated if that happened to them. But still, even having to reset the game, I was still intent on getting back into it and playing it and finishing it because it is that kind of story that's very captivating that you want to see through to the end. The acting is amazing in this game the cutscenes are incredible you really get drawn into everything that's going on with her through not only the visuals but the sound and having the headphones on the whispers and everything that's going on through your head it's an amazing game as far as an overall product it does have some things that can be knocked you know, like the limited area where you can battle in is a little bit frustrating. There's a severe lack of boss fights, I think, and even a lack of combat in this game. I, I kind of felt like there could have been more combat, though I still wouldn't want it to be overwhelming. But at the same time, the overall experience of this game is incredible. And I think that's where it differs from other games in that this is more of an experience than a game. So if that's something you're looking for and you like combat, you like puzzles, and you like a game that you're going to go away from feeling something really positive or feel like you've really learned something from, as I did as far as uh, mental illness as well as the historical aspects of what was going on during this time, this is a game for you and something that I would highly recommend everyone playing. Uh, I think it's really well done, and I hope Ninja Theory works more on games like this and maybe other developers take notes and do the same thing, you know? Yes, and developers who listen to the question and answer segment uh, make those games everybody was talking about. Absolutely. <laughs> Send us some money, too. Yeah, we want royalties for every concept that was mentioned earlier. All right, let's roll into our games for December and January. Rich, December's a good one. We're doing a competition. What's it all about? Yeah, December, as we mentioned last month, we're doing the We Like Gun Games competition. We're playing through House of the Dead 3, Ghost Squad, and Attack of the Movies 3D. Should be a fun competition, and by the time you hear this podcast, this competition's already started. You'll be past the deadlines, but still... Play these games, experience them. So in next month's podcast, you can listen to our discussion of the games. And also, we'll do our top five games of the year that we played in 2019. We'll discuss the playthroughs, what our favorites were, and be joined by a few special guests. So it should be a great time, huh, Sean? Yeah, those are always some of my favorite episodes because you can kind of go back and clean up some things you said about a game or you know maybe you have some second thoughts or it's really good to just have a second chance to 
discuss the games from the year and do a good recap. And plus we have our cool superlatives, like Absolutely. what are games you played that weren't part of the playthrough? What was the worst game you played? And it's always a lot of fun. And, uh, it's always something I really look forward to. So in January, the games will be Star Fox for the Super Nintendo and Star Fox 64 for the Nintendo 64. And <laughs> Star Fox 2. Um, <laughs> sorry, uh, something got caught in my throat there. But yeah, um, Rich, I'm a huge fan of the Star Fox franchise. I grew up playing these games. Star Fox 64 is hands down far and away my favorite 64 games and one of my favorite games of all time. And the original Star Fox brings back a lot of childhood memories on par with Dragon Warrior. So wow. are you as hyped for this playthrough as I am? I got to say, man, I'm a little skeptical. Okay. I was not a big Star Fox fan when I was younger. I did not really care for the Super NES version that much. And, you know, it might have been because I wasn't quite as skilled as a gamer as I am now. So I'm really interested more so to see whether it changes my perspective on this game. And I've actually never played the 64 version before because, as I mentioned prior in the show, I was a PlayStation guy, so never had a 64 growing up. So should be a very interesting month for me, and I can't wait to check out these games. So I knew you weren't a 64 guy, but you've really never played star fox 64 like ever never wow <laughs> so i'm guessing you're gonna play it on a 64 original hardware everything right absolutely you have to man well i'm debating because i'm not gonna do that <laughs> i'm either gonna play it on the wii or on the 3ds we should mention there's a really good 3ds remake of star fox 64 it's not a remake it's a port but it has 3d graphics the controls are slightly different to kind of accommodate the 3ds but it's a very good game and it's an acceptable way to play the game for the playthrough so yeah i'm planted on that piece of shit console Oof. with the shitty controls oh. and everything so get uh, ready baby great <laughs> You know, we went through a deep, intense political and mental health conversation. <laughs> we almost got to the end of the game with almost saying nothing controversial. And then you go got to get on everybody's favorite Nintendo console. Oh, wow. <laughs>
And with that, we wrap up another episode. Thank you as always for listening and a special thanks to everyone who participated in the playthrough. In December, we're having our Wii Light Gun competition with the Attack of the Movies 3D, Ghost Squad, and House of the Dead 3. Be sure to log on to the forums at rfgeneration.com to check out the rules and standings, and we'll see you next time on the Playcast. Basketball. Bow. Why does one have a flamethrower? I got this guy. <clears throat> Here he goes. He can hit from long range. I'm just gonna spam at him. Don't in hell! Okay, yeah. I can hit two at a time. I can't even move. This guy's so hot. Where am I? Oh, it changed my character. I enjoy Did that pig just kick me? You just changed. How come I have zero already? to win. I'm already at zero. How was that? You changed it. Well, now good. So go down. I didn't want this guy. What do these back buttons do? Ooh, I don't want to try. I know this such a game. Burn my shell. It's a crocodile. Oh, I love this part. This is my favorite level. Mike do it, yeah, do. So we don't die each other. So come down. That's because you changed it. Orange and blue are so good. Orange and blue are so good. I just kicked him! Oof! Hey! I thought I needed it! What? What did you get? What did you get? They grabbed me. 
hard to make video games? I don't know, but I'm making one. I think so, though. Because you have to put, like... Yeah, the surfer. Red, the 
like to ride. Yes! I like to ride on the roads. Yes, oh yeah, yes, let's go, yes. Uh, uh, these guys are so bad. I hate it. I killed them. The bus man. When you hit them, they be five bucks. They be five bucks in your head. Jumping these jumps. Oh. oh, that's what the mysteries do. How do you kill these guys? You gotta jump and kick them. You mean this? You mean the fan from like this? Got one? I didn't get those guys from up there. I don't like the angle it's at. This is him. <laughs> hey, Mom. Here he comes. There he is. Oh, he's he actually so down. small when you get up close. Crane. Yeah, Crane is actually so small when he gets up close. Bro, you think you can be me, Cranny Rainy? <laughs> oh, no, no, no. He's almost dead. Kid, you trash. You're hot garbage. That was pretty cool. Bye, Patricia. Oh dang it, I got hit a lot of times that time. Yay! Wait, no, I have to kill him! Die! Why won't he die? Cowabunga! 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 <laughs> 